Well, hello and welcome to the Plain Talking UK podcast and it's the New Year 2022 show. Always exciting stuff, lots of things to talk about and a bit of a review of some of our favourite moments from this year. So joining me over in the PTUK Master Suite studio is Matt. Happy New Year, Matt. And, and to you, Nev, and to you. Now, what did you do over Christmas? What, what, uh, you were off to Belfast, I think, weren't you? Yes, had a great time in Belfast. Uh, great city. I've only ever been there on, on work uh, duties previously, but it was nice to go there. Weather was typical Belfast weather, a bit wet and windy, <laughs> but went up to the Giant's Causeway oh, for wow. a walk around there, which was beautiful, and also to the Titanic Museum, where a couple of my chums were involved with the audiovisual production and equipment installation there. Ooh. So that was really great. So, I need, I need uh, a full review of it because I've actually been. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on the museum itself. Yeah, great. It's a, it's a fantastic place. And, you know, you can go around it in about two hours and mm. it doesn't feel like two hours at all. It's really, really nice. And, uh, yeah, fun for all the family. And, of course, most importantly, a nice cafe at the end of it as well. <laughs> well, that's true. I must admit, as I say, that's one of the things that, that blew my mind away from going, go, going there, of course, was um, the amount, uh, the volume of artefacts that they had there from, from the actual Titanic. That was one of the things that, that really blew me away. I think this is it. I mean, we all know, we kind of think we know the story, don't we? But it's not to actually go around the whole thing and with the amount of detail that they mm. are showing there. Yeah. It is remarkable, absolutely incredible. Um, and so I, I was very impressed. I'm normally sort of fairly critical about the, these kinds of yeah. things. But honestly, if, if you fancy a, a, a trip out to the Titanic Museum, I can thoroughly recommend it in uh, just outside Belfast, down by the, uh, by the docks there. And of course, it, it, I mean, the building itself is sort of like a work of art in its own right, isn't it? With the with the layout uh, and that kind of thing, it is. It's a, it's a beautiful building. Yeah, and a bit like the uh, well, it's called the Titanic Quarter, that that new developed area down by the uh, dockside there, and mm. it's it, it really is great, and that they they've presented it beautifully. Lots of different things to do, and when the weather's nice, it's a nice walk around outside as well. So yeah, uh, yeah a really good uh, day out. Thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. Absolutely okay. Yeah, well, so I had quite a quiet Christmas in comparison. I think it was just me and my mum on Christmas Day, and then we went down to Boxing Day to go and see my uncle who lives in Clacton and had the usual Boxing Day family shenanigans down there and uh, essentially I think, <laughs> I, don't know, I think I don't know about you Nick, but most people around here seem to be going out of their way to try and avoid Covid at the moment it's all a bit, well, all a bit rife yes. <laughs> Yeah I know there's a lot of it about sadly mm. my, my son's picked it up so oh, he's having goodness. to self-isolate at yeah. his mum's house so he can't even see his son his one year old son at oh, the, wow. uh, Christmas time, he saw him Christmas Day Yeah, uh, but that was it So, um, but uh, yeah hopefully he's better now but uh, uh, yes, Mrs. Nev and I have been using the lateral flow tests yes. and all the rest of it, um, especially when we mix it with the great unwashed. Of course, uh, in, in uh, <laughs> economy <laughs> class on British Airways. Wait, obviously. wait, wait, wait! Hang on, hang on. Abort, abort. You weren't in one A for your trip over to Belfast. Well, well, I, I was, but obviously those passengers had to go past me. Oh, I see. Into, right, uh, into steerage <laughs> class. Oh, right. Oh, I see. Call it. I sort uh, of assumed there'd be some kind of like you know filtering screen or something you, protecting you. I agree that there ought to be, really. Oh, Fair enough. But uh, no, it's always a good idea, especially if you're mixing it with people that you oh, are yeah. not normally with. 
Um, but uh, so far, all good. And um, yeah, so that's that's, that's absolutely good. yeah, no, all good. So it sounds like a good Christmas and New Year had by all. You probably noticed that we are a couple of people missing uh, on this uh, particular episode, and there's a very good reason for that, Nev, isn't there? Yes, where are they? I mean, for goodness' sake, <laughs> we're told them where we're going to be. Absolutely. But, uh, no, the, uh, the 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 dynamic duo are uh, in the United States of America. Indeed. And uh, um, but uh, having a, a very good time indeed. I'm thoroughly envious of all the stuff that's been yeah. going on there. I must say. Um, now we, we've had a bit of a sneaky peek of what's been going on here. So uh, I think probably the best thing we can do here, Nev, is shall we play them the little video that they sent of us, which is essentially their their year in review. Let's do that. Well, hello everybody. Uh, hope everybody's having a great holiday season. I've got Carlos. Hey. I've got an airplane. Carlos just flew this airplane. Carlos, what have we done today? What have we done? We have, uh, well, we've, we've checked the aircraft over first, which is always an important <laughs> thing, pre-flight checks. Starting from the beginning, yep. yes. Yep, starting from the beginning, yep. Taking off all the uh, covers on the pitot tubes and on the inlet. Oh, well, the abridged version, we completed yep. the pre-flight. The pre-flight, yeah. Yep. Carlos helped me with that. Um, we are sitting in a Pilatus PC-12. Um, the, the mission today was to take the owner of this aircraft up to Asheville, North Carolina. Um, so we did the pre-flight. Carlos did all fantastic first officer duties. So he stocked the bar, the snacks, <laughs> ice, uh, pre-flight, clean the airplane, the whole thing, everything we do ready for, uh, for passengers. And then, uh, what, well, we headed out to, uh, Asheville. Asheville. 9,000 feet or so. I oh, know we're at 12,000 feet. Oh, 12,000, yeah. Yep, uh, it's a pretty short flight. It's only 30 minutes. Um, what did you think of uh, Asheville? Asheville is, um, I think, how America was or looked <laughs> 40 years ago, 50 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Authentic American. Yeah, that's Asheville. true. Yeah. We took. Uh, we went to a, a nice little steakhouse. Yeah. Uh, didn't get a chance to eat because the owner called and said he was actually ready to come back. So it was supposed to be a, a three to four hour sit on the ground. Turned into uh, about an hour. Yeah. But we checked out a, a local airport there that we're thinking about bringing the Pilatus into. A nice short strip, three thousand foot by forty feet, uh, which is uh, nice and challenging. No taxiways, just grass. Uh, but I think we, I think we came to the conclusion. You can get in and get out. Yeah, we could do it safely, yeah. not too heavy. Um, it's kind of what the Pilatus is built to do. So uh, I think the owner may have us go up there uh, in the near future. Let's see, what else? Uh, came back uh, very quickly to the airplane, got ready. Carlos got to experience uh, the signature FBO chain. What do you think about signature, actually, in the life of a corporate pilot just hanging out? It's, it's a lovely, lovely building, FBO building with multiple rooms um, rooms for a bit of R&R &R, somewhere to eat somewhere to sleep yep. somewhere to do your pre-flight plan all spotlessly clean um, really nice actually Yeah, I thought it was really really nice FBO yeah yeah they do a really good job uh, most signatures are, are really just world class facilities so I got to see that the people just kind of hanging out pilots in some comfy lounge chairs with a camera pointed at the uh, front door just in case our passengers walk in and <laughs> you get a scurry on down to the airplane to get it ready. 
Uh, what else? I saw some cool airplanes up there. There's uh, some net jets. There was uh, cool Air Force planes. Yep. We saw a, uh, a V-22. V-22 before we off, yeah. uh, Before we took off, yeah. Um, and then Carlos actually flew, hand flew, most of the way back. Um, a little bit different than a 150, <laughs> huh? Yeah. When you're used to flying a 150 and used to inputting control movements like this, on this aircraft, the Pilatus, the control movements are like this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we were doing 266 knots over the ground. Um, I think pro that's probably the biggest takeaway. It doesn't take very much to, to yeah. move the airplane, right? Yeah. And we were doing a little bit of automation there, but but uh, we never turned the autopilot on, which we have the ability to do in this airplane is just hand fly it. And uh, Carlos did a pretty good job, I think. Uh, it started, uh, well, let's, say, let's just say the oscillations reduced <laughs> as the flight went along. Uh, but I thought you did a pretty good job. And, and, and we were in, in, in mountainous, it was bumpy, coming into uh, Charlotte Class Bravo. So it was, it was uh, not a... Not an easy flight in that it was so fast, right? A lot of things happening. But I thought you did pretty good. Yeah, I kind of covered the other aspects of a, of a first officer's job, I suppose. Yeah, Checklists, no. and Checklist, gear, uh, radios, flaps. Um, well, I guess we didn't. The radios. I didn't, I didn't speak on yeah. the radio, so they that, that would have really thrown the uh, ATC <laughs> to hear my voice on the radio. But, but um, yeah, otherwise pretty good, and uh, this is kind of the culmination of his trip here to the U.S. Yeah. I think we'll probably talk about it at some point, but he's basically been uh, indoctrinated into American life. Skydiving, barbecue, <laughs> lots of beer, uh, flying, oh jeez, ice skating. Ice skating, yeah. yeah. So, um, pretty good. So, it's been nice having Carlos here for pretty much a week. Oh, and that doesn't even count Atlanta. Yeah. That's just that was just all Charlotte. But uh, thank you guys. Thanks everybody for a wonderful year on the show. I think, uh, man, we've talked about it, and we just couldn't be any happier with where we are at the end of 2021. Thanks to the fans and yeah. everybody that downloads the show and watches the show. All our guests, our guests have been guests have been on amazing. Point yeah. this year. Yeah. Nev with some of the content that he's produced. Uh, just amazing um, and of course that's that's due to uh, contributions that allow us to get some pretty nice kit but um, Matt man he's just like a pro now right <laughs> <laughs> the, the system works itself and uh, he may not realize that Matt Matt has learned aircraft stuff yeah yeah that's the that's probably the biggest takeaway from 2021 is Matt knows airplane things uh, which I think is pretty cool. And, of course, John, who's just worked so hard. Um, I don't know that many of our actual listeners know what John does for a living, but it doesn't allow him a lot of free time, and he does an amazing job with the time that he is given uh, to edit these shows and get all our all our behind-the-scenes stuff done. So just great 2021. And yeah. Look, 400th is coming up. Yeah, 400th next year in February on the 26th. And then on to 500. Yeah, on the 500. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully, I'll be welcome, yeah. welcoming Armando and his family into the UK um, for the for the 400th yeah. February. Me too. We're I hope. Well, I hope the course. the travel stays open. Yeah, I'm sure all of you guys do too. So, yeah. Anyway, I guess uh, 
from Charlotte, North Carolina. In, in the cabin here. Yeah, inside of the airplane. We're uh, signing off for now, right? Okay. Take care, everyone. See you See in ya. 2022. Bye. Bye. I mean, wow. <laughs> yeah. I still, I, still, I still can't believe Armando let him fly the plane. What's the matter with the guy? <laughs> <laughs> the man has taken leave of his senses. Indeed, <laughs> clearly. And he's had a word with him when he comes over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sternly worded letter, at least, if nothing yes. else. But uh, Fancy letting Carlos in the, in the first officer's seat position. I mean, I, I, I only hope he wasn't involved uh, on, with any of the radio calls, because uh, <laughs> that, that part of the, the world, they would have not been able to understand a word no. Carlos was saying. I no, imagine. you can imagine with a heavy Norfolk accent trying to communicate <laughs> with ATC, that's not going to end well, is it? <laughs> no, especially in Charlotte and, and all that neck of the woods. So, Indeed. Uh, yeah, but uh, no, it's great, great to see them in such a great time. I'm, as I say, I'm thoroughly envious. Absolutely. And, uh, begin to wonder why we weren't invited but so uh, well that's a conversation <laughs> for another day it is indeed it is indeed okay so we're here to review uh, the year as both carlos nev and armando have said so i reckon we should start with you nev what segment uh, most grabbed your attention in 2021 there's so many to choose from, mm. and I was racking my brains to, to think of a favourite one. I've, if I was allowed to have, you know, three or four, I, I would probably <laughs> do that, but then we'd yeah. be into a four-hour show, Quite, probably, yeah. um, which we can't really do. No. But uh, one of my... I, I would say this is my personal favourite for, for the last year, was the interview that we did with Rory Ouskerry. And uh, Rory's a fascinating fella, very, very entertaining as well. Um, you'll know him from his Rory on air uh, podcast and his youtube channel uh, and also you know many other things he's done besides so we were lucky to grab hold of him for about 45 to 50 minutes uh, on the show and uh, this is how it went Rory is a commercial helicopter and fixed-wing microlight pilot. He's also an award-winning radio presenter, multimedia producer and voiceover artist. In 2019, after more than a decade at the BBC working as a studio director, he quit his job and took a leap of faith towards his dream of becoming a professional helicopter pilot. Well, after 14 months of intensive integrated ch uh, training, which is a process he's very kindly shared with the public each step of the way on his YouTube YouTube channel and he's now fully qualified to do that and he joins us now on the show well hello again Rory thanks very much indeed for joining us absolute pleasure I'm looking forward to getting into some uh, helicopters and airplanes chat with you guys well yes there's already been some abuse in the in the chat room <laughs> for, from our resident A320 captain uh, Al uh, and who says that Rory has exchanged a lawnmower engined washing line for something even more dangerous a helicopter <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking at the chat now. It's not my PR. I'm not lucky enough to have one, but I did see that comment. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's right. it just gives you an idea of the, of the tone of, of how things might go. <laughs> mind you, you see, mind you, I, I'm a little bit in Al's camp here, cause, and this is one thing that I'm hoping to have a myth or 12 uh, debunked from, because, you know, I'm convinced that uh, uh, helicopters essentially de de you know, defy science and logic and were basically made at Hogwarts. I can't get my head around them. I really can't. Actually, Matt, just uh, just just read out Micah's one because that is brilliant. What Micah's just put in. The oh, is this the question? Or yeah, uh, yeah, yes, right. Yes, really it good. says basically a question for Rory. A helicopter <laughs> pilot friend of mine once told me that learning to fly a helicopter is very similar to learning to balance um, on a beach ball. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Any truth in that? Do you know what? Actually, 
there really is to begin with when when i first started it i i honestly thought there must be something wrong with this aircraft because it's just not it's not doing what i expected it to do at all and after a while you start to realize that no it's not the aircraft that's at fault it's you um, and eventually you know after much considerable consternation and time spent and patience of an instructor sat there poised ready to sort of snatch it back from you when it inevitably goes awry in the hover you do, you do sort of get it but yeah the beach ball analogy I, I i think the first time i had to go in an r22 i remember thinking it was like a a round bottomed glass bowl in water that had no, no keel so it would just <laughs> you know sort of loll around willy-nilly under the, the whim of the breeze but it's not so bad now i've got used to it Wow. Absolute uh, classic. Yes, that's a very good description, I think, that, isn't it? But, uh, well, let's go right the way back to when you uh, were a little boy, uh, Roy. So where did your love of aviation come from uh, in the first place? Well, I was um, fortunate to grow up on a remote island in, uh, in Scotland, in the Orkney Islands, on the east side of Orkney. It's called Ausgerry, so I'm named after the island. Uh, it was just my family that lived on it, so my uh, parents and two younger brothers, and uh, we had a flock, we still do, my parents still farm a flock of rare breed, rare breed North Ronaldsey sheep, um, and it was a, a wonderful upbringing, um, you know, lots of outdoors, lots of fresh air, lots of exercise, lots of, uh, you know, stuff washed up on the beach to play with, and, you know, things to get involved in on the farm, but... It was also pretty quiet. There was just our family, so there wasn't a lot of interaction with other people for large chunks of the year. And aside from, you know, maybe the odd aeroplane that would occasionally fly over or the odd fishing boat that would go past, there wasn't a lot of particularly exciting activity until once or twice a year, the Northern Lighthouse Board would turn up to do maintenance work on the lighthouse that's on the end of the island. And to do that maintenance, they would normally arrive with a ship, which they would moor about a mile off the, off the coast. And they would put their guys and their equipment ashore via shuttle runs done with a Bolco 105 helicopter. Um, and I just, from the age of about six onwards, I remember being utterly captivated by that beautiful bright red noisy jet fuel smelling machine where the pilots would get out wearing flight suits and their bars and all the rest of it and i just thought this is the coolest thing ever and i'm going to do that and i remember distinctly thinking that is what i want to do for a job and and it never went it's it never went every time they came i was obsessed with it i'd watch every single move they made i just you know like some of you have mentioned earlier in, in a jokey way you know i thought it was a magic carpet i still do to be honest <laughs> even though i understand how it works there is an element of magic to it when you look at them sort of sat shut down with their rotors kind of drooping and you know they do look a bit ungainly and you think oh how's that ever going to get in the air but it's just it's just fantastic and it still captures my excitement just as much now at the age of 32 whenever i see or hear a helicopter as as it did when i was a little boy yeah, so, so growing up there then, I mean, presumably aviation w was quite necessary to, to get to and from the mainland. Well, yes, it was. I mean, we we never had the option of going by an aircraft from Ausgerry. Um, it was always small boats. But, you know, once you got onto the Orkney mainland, you could fly down to Inverness or Aberdeen or whatever. Um, we also had a, an Islander aircraft, little twin-engined turboprop that would do 
um, you know, trips to the North Isles, um, you know, that were around us. So we saw that little aeroplane occasionally. Um, I actually won, once won a competition at school for drawing an utterly terrible picture of it, but they, they seemed to like it because they said it sort of captured the excitement of it, even though I could see other people's pictures were much more true likeness to it. Mine looked like a banana with wings. Um, but uh, there was a bit of that. And then, of course, there was, you know, Shetland Coast Guard would sometimes appear with a, uh, I think it was a Sikorsky S61 they used to use that um, did the sort of search and rescue job. So there was a bit of that. And then, of course, there was the North Sea Oil crew changer. So there was a fair bit of aviation activity, but the Bolco 105 turning up. And, you know, I remember the first time they they took me up for a little flight around the island in it. And it's a tiny island, so it literally took about a minute and a half to go right <laughs> around the edge. <laughs> but it was one of the best minute and a half of my life, certainly. Wow. Well, uh, trying to re- recover his... Uh pithy comment earlier uh captain al says all jokes aside uh, rory will, will make an excellent instructor he really has the right balance of knowledge and integrity my goodness that's wow. well that's very kind of him i'll, I'll send him more money next time <laughs> I might no i wouldn't he'll only spend it on wine um that's, <laughs> just, just, sorry the, the radio geek in me has to ask this question i'm afraid rory i mean what how did you go from obviously this passion of of wanting to be a, a you know flying helicopters obviously uh, where you were living etc i mean how did you go from from that to what certainly us here in the uk know you as working on five live and and you know sort of running studios and all sorts well it, it actually was a real stroke of luck because um one of the other things that was integral to our life on the island was the radio. We didn't have a TV till I was 14. And even then it was one of those tiny little black and white ones with an actual knob. You had to tune in and a little hoop aerial like you'd see in a cartoon. It was hopeless. No, no remote control then. No remote control. And, you know, it was just awful. But we so we, we relied hugely on the radio because it didn't require much electricity. And it was, you know, it was available the whole time. So I loved the radio and I still do. And um, we, once I sort of finished being homeschooled at about the age of 14 and started going into the local grammar school in uh, Kirkwall on the Orkney mainland, and I'd commute back and forth at the weekends on a fishing boat, I, I started to, you know, just kind of become more and more interested in radio. And, and one children in need night, I walked into the local radio station, BBC Radio Orkney, and sort of said sounds really interesting is there any chance I could kind of hang around and maybe do something to help and amazingly the boss at the time instead of sending this spotty 16 year old away with a flea in his ear he actually invited me in and said yeah come and get involved and I honestly never left I went straight back in the following Monday and said how great it had been you know can I come back and do more work experience and I I just basically weaseled my way in to the BBC and then around the same time I'd phoned all three of the armed forces i phoned the the navy the raf and the army and said you know i'd like to become a helicopter pilot will you take me and within the space of 15 minutes my career dream was dashed because all of them on the recruitment line said no on the basis of i was too tall because i'm six foot four and i had a medical history of asthma on my record as a small child which i'd already grown out of by that point but it was on my history and they felt one interested. And when, when she said, you're too tall, I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, this was the RAF lady. She said, well, you're too tall. Uh, if, if you have to eject from a jet, you'll lose your legs because they'll be underneath the control console. <laughs> and I said, well, 
you know, typical smart Alex 16 year old, I said, well, I don't want to be a fast jet pilot. I want to fly helicopters. And as far as I know, you can't eject from them. (laughs) (laughs) And and how was that received? (laughs) Well, I I suspect she thought, well, this guy's got an attitude. We definitely don't want him. So So it's probably more that than the height thing. But anyway, that, that sort of dashed it. So I just, at that point, I just plowed all my effort into the radio and I worked at the BBC every night after school and, you know, kind of went down that road, eventually got a job at Five Live and, you know, I moved to London and then up to Salford and, and did that for several years. And it was, you know, it was kind of the, the aviation thing just never went away. It's, it, uh, you know, you'll all know the same thing and, and everyone watching this will, I'm sure, feel the same that once the aviation bug's bitten you and you've got it in your mind that you want to fly, it just won't stop. Wow. I was just going to ask you as well, because, you know, that that must have been a, a massive moment for you. And I remember you uh, showing us a video of you leaving uh, BBC uh, Media City at Salford for the last time. I mean, how long did it take you to make that decision to leave the BBC and to become a full time uh, helicopter pilot? Well, it was a big decision. It was a huge decision for my long-suffering wife, Lizzie, as well, who's been a tremendous support to me throughout all of this, and I couldn't have done what I've done without her. But I'd I'd been lucky because once we'd moved to Manchester and we'd got settled and I'd got this job at the Beeb and I'd started earning a little bit of money and, you know, we'd kind of of got fairly well organised. And, of course, Barton Airfield was a 10-minute drive from where I lived. And I saw the small aircraft there and I just thought, well, maybe there's a way for me to at least get a, a license to just fly for fun. And I'll, I was already by that point, I'd, I'd kind of put to bed the idea of ever being a commercial pilot. I thought, well, it's, it's just, fate's just not going to work. It's not going to be a thing for me. I'll just try and do it for fun. And I went and spoke to one of the schools there, a couple of the schools, in fact, and eventually settled on main air flying school and doing a, a micro light um, NPPL license. And I absolutely loved it from day one, from the first trial flight in a Eurostar. I thought this is just as good as I thought it would be. It's not a helicopter, but it's brilliant in its own way. And I'm going to be able to go exploring and and fly and call myself a pilot. So I piled into that. I flew twice a week. I was on shifts at the BBC. So it was easy for me to fly during weekdays and all the rest of it, which was great. And eventually, after about a year of training, I got that license. And I, I, that's when I started the Rory On Air channel. I thought, well, I'll film my flights so I can review them afterwards for my own sort of performance development. Because, um, you know, I notice a lot of things when I'm editing a video that I maybe didn't notice in the air or little nuances with stuff that happens on the radio or whatever. So it's been a useful tool. But... Again, it, you know, the, the aviation thing, you always want to just do more. It's like, oh, okay, well, I can fly that. So maybe I could try another type of aeroplane. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get my LAPL license because there's a loophole that means that if I get it now, I might one day get a PPL. I'll just, Lizzie's like, you're not going to spend more money on it, are you? You've already got a license. Why do you need another? I'm like, well, you know, if blue folder's a blue folder, I wouldn't mind another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got three now. Um, so I, I sort of plowed on with that and then, We'd been up in Orkney, Lizzie and I, for a a summer holiday, and we were literally driving back in the car. Lizzie was driving. I was scrolling through Facebook in the passenger seat, and I saw this advert from Heli Centre for um, these Bristow cadets um, to, you know, join and get trained as a commercial helicopter pilot and sent off onto the North Sea. 
and I looked at the requirements for what was needed and it was things like UK driving license, you know, five GCSEs, a legal right to work in the UK. And I was like, tick, tick. Yeah, I've got that. And I, I, I showed it to Lizzie when we arrived back home and she said, well, you might as well apply. You know, she, she subsequently said to me, she didn't think I'd actually get through. So she thought it was, might as well just encourage me to apply anyway. So I put in an application and long story short, which you can watch the kind of full story on Rory on air. Um, but uh, long story short, they, they offered me a place. I didn't win one of the, the Bristow sponsorships. So I ended up having to pay for the course myself, but there was only eight of us on the course. Four of them were the Bristow cadets. And then there's four of us who've self-funded it ourselves. So out of, I think they had about 850 applications in the first place. So to have got down to, you know, one of the last spaces, even with having to pay for it myself, felt like an achievement. And I, I talked to Lizzie and my parents about it a lot. And I just thought, look, I'm 31. If I don't do this now, this really is absolutely it. It's game over for commercial flying for me. I'm never going to get another chance. And sometimes you just have to take a risk in life. And I've, I, I, you know, I love the BBC. I love my job there. I had a great relationship with my colleagues. It was good fun. It was exciting. I could see myself doing that happily as a career. But again, that nagging feeling of I just wanted to be in the sky. And if someone's going to pay me to be in the sky and it's a helicopter, I just had to do it. Wow. On the, on the air of um, role models, actually, uh, Rory, because I think most of us watch various YouTube channels of pilots who have their own channels like yourself. And you kind of look at these, a lot of the youngsters especially, look at these pilots and follow these pilots and think, oh, I really want to be, I want, I want to deal with his, you know, I want to fly what he's flying. You know, at the start of this kind of thing with you, when it all started, the kind of whole flying, wanting to fly, learn to fly, to where you are now, was there any particular kind of role models you had that you knew of or you knew personally or you saw online or on sort of social media? Yeah, well, I mean, social media wasn't really a thing back then. But um, when I started Rory on air, the, a couple of the big inspirations for me was um, John, the flying reporter and plain old Ben, both of whom who already had successful YouTube channels. And I sort of looked at theirs and I thought, well, perhaps I could try and do something a bit like that. But my niche would be microlites when they were flying um, group A stuff. So that was that was kind of one of my start points for that. And both of them have since become good friends, which is really nice. And I've met actually a lot of really good friends through the YouTube community. So it's, you know, that's been really great, but winding it back a bit further than that, actually, aside from the Northern Lighthouse board and, and it was actually bond helicopters who they hired and it was their pilots that were always willing to answer my questions and let me sit in the cockpit. Although I remember once when I was six, one of them offered to let me sit in the cockpit, obviously when it was all shut down and I refused because I thought it was so magical that there was a strong chance it might actually just take off with me in it and I wouldn't know what to do. So I refused <laughs> and I just stood next to it and looked in. And I've always regretted that since. <laughs> but no, they, they, they were great. But the, the Orkney Flying Club, there was a flying club in Orkney that had a, a Cessna 172, a bit of a battered old thing, but it was, you know, it was it flew. And some of the guys there had built their own aeroplanes as well. And it was, you know, there was guys in their sort of 40s, 50s and 60s who'd go there for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. And I would pedal out to the airport on my push bike in all weathers and sit in this drafty old porter cabin with them. And I was the youngest person there by about 30 years. And they were so friendly and encouraging. And every time they went flying, if they had a spare seat, they would take me with them. 
um they were just fantastic and they always encouraged me and i think that's hugely important to get people into this industry because it is difficult the exams are hard you know there's a lot of hoops to jump through there are a lot of barriers finance you know itself being one of them and my my parents are you know crofting sheep farmers they're not wealthy bankers or anything like that um so you know financially that that's why i never thought it was going to happen if the military weren't going to pay for it there was no way i was ever going to be able to afford it but you know 10 years of hard work and all the rest of it so it it, it is difficult but role models are really important and i you know i wouldn't like to call myself a role model to anybody but if anyone watches my channel and sees what i'm doing and what i've done and wants to follow what else might happen next in my career and you know if in some tiny way helps to give them just that little bit of a nudge to think yeah i'm going to give this a go myself and you know that's a win if if one person becomes a pilot of any shape or form because of something i've said or done that's that's worth it actually uh, all jokes aside we're captain al here we were just saying uh, he was just saying both rory and the flying reporter have been very honest uh, in the mistakes that they've made so this is very important aspect of learning and is very much uh, to be encouraged and i think really that i mean al does sort of like type rating um training and stuff uh, of uh, sort of a320s and things like that so you know this this is a guy who knows what he's talking about but uh, I, I think that's so true isn't it i think that's one of the nice things about the your your channel is it is very much warts and all if you see what i mean so it hasn't always gone smoothly for you and you've been gracious enough if you like to share that with the people that are following you well that's very kind of you and i think i think the flying reporter does a tremendous job of that to be honest it's it's actually quite difficult because on the one hand i love sharing the mistakes because they're often the things that are entertaining and people will learn from that i learn from it and i don't want to take away the opportunity for other people to benefit from seeing me make a mistake and learn from it by cutting it out but on the other hand i have to bear in mind that anyone who might think about employing me isn't going to want to employ somebody <laughs> who looks like an idiot who can't operate an aircraft safely so there has to be a line somewhere i mean fortunately i hand on heart don't think i've done anything really stupid yet um but you know i have cut things out because you know in the context of a video or the way it's edited it may just not look good and you know taken out of context and particularly on the internet people who you know armchair pilots can be quite harsh and again i'm very lucky that you know the vast bulk of the comments i get on my channel are all positive and friendly and helpful and i'm very very grateful for that and I, you know, I sort of wonder as the channel grows and the net gets cast wider, whether or not that'll change. So that'll be interesting to see. But the, the, the editing process and whether to include mistakes and errors and all that sort of stuff is a constant battle for me and is something that I discuss on a regular basis. I mean, every video that I've produced while I've been flying with Heli Center, they've watched and checked for me before I've put it online because... Right. Obviously, it's their aircraft. It's it's their train set, as I say, and I, you know, they have a, a right to have their business and their flight school represented fairly. But also, I don't want my channel and my videos to scupper my employment prospects in the future with with Heli Centre and and wider afield too. So, it is a it is a difficult um, sort of call to make. And one of the things that actually that's come up in the last few weeks is about me sort of appearing to present while i'm flying because i'm talking kind of to an audience whilst i'm i'm flying as well and i think 
you know, I can see why people might be concerned about that. And it's, it is a, a, a difficult one, but because I am a broadcaster at heart, you know, that's what my old job was. A lot of people are scared of microphones and cameras and they get distracted by them and they think they need to look at them carefully. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a thing. Whereas it's not a thing for me now because a I've been flying with cameras in the cockpit for 150 hours, probably nearly 200 hours now. And I'm so used to having them around, you know, a radio show when you're the presenter and you're the person driving the mixing desk, you, it's, it's all one thing. You can't talk without driving the mixing desk and you can't do the mixing desk without talking. So you have to do it all at once. And, you know, obviously you, you, thinking about the flying 100% and probably not saying anything when you're on final approach and all that sort of stuff. But when you're in the cruise and you've done all the checks and everything's trimmed and you're keeping a good lookout, I, I feel like I have the capacity to say something that might end up on a video that's a bit more and over and above what somebody else who isn't from a broadcasting background would say. But again, taken out of context, people might think, oh, this guy's not concentrating on the flying. He's just presenting a tv program in a cockpit that's dangerous this guy's an idiot so but, it's, but I mean, it's very difficult and you yeah it's sort of like on the flip side to that though as you say because that used to be your job essentially um something like with the rest of us were doing would take us more time if you like to to be able to do that you're you're literally almost able to do that because of your background if you like almost in your sleep so if you like you're so used to doing it there is more capacity for for you to be it's much more natural for you to be chatting away and talking to people because that's what you were doing like day in day out obviously at, at five live yeah absolutely i mean you know that is that is totally totally how i see it and i you know look aviation in any form is dangerous and is something to be taken incredibly seriously and you know there's no room for mistakes and joking around to a large degree um particularly in helicopters i mean you know they are they are an unusual beast and they have to be treated <laughs> with great respect because if something goes wrong you've not got very long to deal with it effectively before you're in a real pickle and i'm very well aware of that um, and you know that does sort of play on my mind a lot but on the other hand yes uh, for me personally I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't feel is totally safe and I talk to myself when I'm in the cockpit anyway if, if one of you came and flew with me you would hear me saying the checks out loud talking myself through what I'm going to do next what I'm thinking about next what's happening you know next in the flight because that's how I process it that's how i kind of learn that's how i just that's how i operate i'm a talky sort of person um and so if that comes out on a video looking like i'm presenting it's not really it's just me doing what i normally do yeah i just look uh, into the chat room at the moment uh, alex robinson says uh, he's personally learned things from rory's channel even little things like how easy it is to fly the lane at east midlands which he used today Excellent. Well, that's great. I, it, that's another interesting point is that I've, I've spoken to quite a few pilots who seem quite, you know, new pilots who seem nervous about controlled airspace and doing things like the Shepshed Long Eaton Lane at East Midlands or even the low level corridor up near Manchester, things like that. And my experience of controllers has, I, I was nervous about it too. I was, I mean, there's a video on my channel where I took my wife up to Fife from Barton, which was a long day out in the, in the Icarus. 
And I remember the nerves when I knew I was going to have to key the mic to speak to Edinburgh Radar and ask them for a transit <laughs> through the Zenith. Oh, well, I felt like a naughty schoolboy. But they couldn't have been more helpful. It couldn't really be any easier. They asked me to hold. They asked me if I could see the landing A320. I said, A firm, and off I went. Actually, not... you, you mentioned the, as I say, doing the the flight through Fife and stuff. I've got in front of me here one of the videos that I'm going to uh, play here now. Now this, now this was flying through London. Am I correct? This particular video. Yeah, yeah. This is the heli lanes. This was great. I mean, how on? I mean, it's like. <laughs> How on earth, what that must, I mean, the, is there a lot of commentary in your ears going on, obviously, when you're flying through somewhere like London? I mean, because it's, you know, I mean, that's very controlled airspace. Yes, it is. And we, we briefed a lot about this before we went. And I studied the chart and I studied, because there's a lot of different altitudes that you have to be at because you fly underneath the approach for for the runways at Heathrow. Um, this bit here where we're going past the, the western end is actually very rare to be able to do that in a helicopter without a lot of holding. Um, I was told by James, he, he was impressed that we got to do that. So as awful as COVID has been and is, particularly for the airline industry, if there's one small bonus was that I got to do that. And there was a lot going on in my ears. There was a lot of radio stuff, but I can't, I don't think there was as much you know anything like as they would have been normally and the controllers were as you know incredibly accommodating which was fantastic but that was a real trip and I, every time i've done something like that the trip through edinburgh up to fife you know it was a long way it was you know with lizzie so it wasn't anyone who knew anything about aviation who, who could help me i had to do it all myself I had to put my big boy pants on and get on with it and the heli lanes obviously i had james there to help me but the idea was for me to try and do it without help so that i knew i could do it on my own and they're just fantastic experiences. And that's one of the things that HeliCenter have done so well is, is really pushed us on this, the integrated course. We've done so many of these longer trips. We went to the Isle of Wight. Some of the guys went over to Carnarvon. Um, you know, lots of controlled airspace transits. And every time you do it and it works and they let you through and you feel like you've, you've kind of shown yourself in a reasonably good light, it boosts your confidence and makes you feel like, yeah, I can do this. This is no big deal. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to ask you about the integrated course, actually, Rory. What are the, uh, what are the pros and cons of, of that course, would you say? Well, for me, the biggest pro of, of doing it integrated was that it was, it was going to be really intense, and it was incredibly intense. I'm sitting here looking at my three massive lever arch files of all the notes from the ATPLs, and I hope I never have to look at them again. Um, but it was, it was all condensed. I knew it was going to be about a year. I mean, in the end, it was... 12 to 14 months but only because of covid delays it would have been done in less than a year had it not been for that and it was effectively a full-time job for for that length of time and that's how i kind of treated it studying all day more revision in the evening same again tomorrow more study at the weekend and and flying in between um and i i knew that at my age and given that i'd been out of higher education for that length of time i needed to do it in that sort of way if i tried to do the exams and do a PPL whilst doing a job, I think life would have moved on and I just would have, it would have taken an absolute inordinate length of time. And I probably would have got bogged down in the, the study and, and possibly just not managed to get through it. So there are advantages of both, you know, integrated and modular and lots of people have got really strong opinions one way or the other. I obviously didn't do it modular, so I don't know how that goes, but integrated work really well for me and it's worked well for the other guys on my course and i think you know there's a lot to be said for it it's the first chance 
to do an integrated commercial helicopter course in the UK, the course that I was on. And now HC2 is running at the moment and there's, there's going to be more, you know, next year as well. So it's an option for people now, which is, I think is great. Yeah. How did you find the transition from fixed wing to rotary? Was that a, a massive leap for you? Yeah, it was actually. It's funny because when we, when we first started flying, it was like January last year. Um, and it was, you know, cold and windy. I mean, nearly every day we flew was like sort of almost on the limits for the wind in the helicopter, which is, you know, about 30 knots. We, we don't go even when the instructor if it's above 30. And it was it was a real challenge. And I, you know, probably a bit youthful exuberance, maybe a certain degree of arrogance, thought, well, I can fly an aeroplane. I've got 140 hours on planes. You know, this can't be that hard. I must be able to pick it up. I'll probably get it before the other guys. And boy was i was i in for a shock it was it was a it is just a completely different ball game it's all different motor skills um it handles completely differently you have to think about lots of different things um you know i, I remember in the airplane the, the flight's not over till you've pulled it to a halt and put the parking brakes on and shut the engine down obviously but the taxi process is generally a little bit more relaxing than the landing Whereas in the helicopter, the taxiing and the hovering bits where you've really got to be on your A game above anything else. Um, so it was very different. And it, I, you know, I struggled with that a bit. And, and I actually, I had a chat with playing old Ben sitting, why am I finding this so difficult? And he said, well, just go easy on yourself, you know, keep going and you'll, you'll get there eventually. And he was right. And the instructors, you know, they said the same thing. We just, we sort of plugged away at it, but it was very different. I think, in the end the biggest help the airplane time has done for me is is with the radio and the confidence with controlled airspace and navigating and just time in the air just time in the cockpit being in charge of an aircraft and all that sort of stuff um that's that's really what the biggest help of the plane time was for me actually one of the things i noticed um rory on on your videos is you you are a user of sky demon yeah 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 it's it's a brilliant app i use myself on the sim when i'm here at home because it ties in with the um x-plane but is do you find that one of the kind of better platforms to use for flight planning and training yeah i absolutely i mean i love sky demon i've used it ever since i started flying in the micro light it's a brilliant tool it's dead easy to use and um i highly recommend it heli center use runway hd um on their school ipads and i think the primary reason is because you can install um the actual caa charts and also more importantly for helicopters the ordnance survey one in fifty thousand maps which go into real detail which is important if you're mm. trying to land in a confined area or in a pub garden or something you really want to be able to see all the, the sort of really extreme detail which is not as important for anybody who's flying around a plane from airport to airport or whatever so they're both great bits of software but yeah i i still use sky demon now for a lot of my planning and i always have it with me on my phone or on an ipad i wouldn't go flying without it the, the chart's great you've got to be able to know how to use a chart and how to navigate in the sort of old school way but the amount of capacity it frees up to keep looking out the window and to concentrate on making the right calls and knowing exactly where you are, awareness of airspace and all the rest of it. It's, it's a vital tool and I just wouldn't go flying without it. So from your training then, from all aspects of the training you've done, um, are there any kind of memorable moments that really stand out? Apart from obviously 
solo because um, <laughs> that's probably the most memorable. But are there any other kind of moments that kind of th- you stand out you, you will never forget? Um, the the hard thing is picking is nailing it down. I don't think there's been a flight I've gone on where I've not at one point or another thought this is fantastic. Um, I, I just I get such a huge buzz from it. It's 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 the little things. Um, that moment, you know, calling my parents and telling them that I'd got my license was was pretty epic. Um, the heli lanes was fantastic. I mean that you know flying along the Thames when I lived in London for eighteen months and I used to walk along the side of the Thames and I'd see helicopters flying around. And I you know, never really thought it would ever be me one day. So that was amazing. The trip to the Isle of Wight we did, um, that was, you know, I said it the furthest south I've ever been on an airplane. Someone said, didn't you go to Australia on your honeymoon? But I wasn't flying the plane. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this, it's, it's just been great. It's been a fantastic experience. Every step of the way, all the little tiny milestones you make when you make your first landing and you're wobbling all over the place and you get it down on the skids, you think, yes, done it. And, you know, obviously learning to hover is a big one because that initially just seems impossible. And, you know, it may take hours. It did for me. And eventually something clicks and you think, if I do less, this sort of works better. <laughs> um so yeah it's it's been fantastic and now i'm now i'm starting well i'm part way through the type conversion course onto the r44 which i'm really enjoying because that's a new challenge now i've got hydraulics and you know it goes a bit faster so i've had to change from an 80 knot brain to a 100 knot brain and all that sort of <laughs> stuff so it's it's you know that's one of the best things about aviation is every single flight you go on there's something new even flying the same route through east midlands that you've done before and you you know they're going to tell you not above 2000 feet remain east of the m1 you just know they're going to say it but every time the weather's slightly different the conditions back at the airfield slightly different there's somebody else out in the circuit you have to work around it's always new and that is exciting so you're obviously flown to cabri and you're learning at the moment on the r44 aren't you like you said is there, is there another helicopter kind of in the well, in the kind of grand scheme of things that you'd like to get type rated on as well or be able to fly? Well, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> the Heli Centre have just got themselves a very nice matte black uh, 109S Grand, which I'm hopefully going to have a go in at some point fairly soon. Um, so that'll be that'll be fantastic. Um, flying the Bolco 105 is a bit of a bucket list item for me. I don't think there are very many of them left in the country but because that was the aircraft that sort of started all of this and i've i've had this photograph which you showed earlier on my desk all the way through all the exam study and in the darkest days of winter when it was raining and i was miserable i used to look at that and think come on rory get on with it this is what this is all about so i'd love to have a go at one of those but i mean the ec135 the 145 bit of heli med action the police um search and rescue um, all of that would be uh, would be absolutely fantastic. Also, um, just going on about kind of the, the the YouTube channel Rory on Air. Obviously, I mean I subscribe. I know Nev subscribes as well to that. Um, where how did the uh, Rory on Air come about? You know, where did the uh, the, the kind of idea to, to have your own YouTube page with all your own videos and stuff on? Um, well. Uh... <laughs> The, the what the idea to start the channel or the idea to start the website 
Uh, the idea to start the channel, the uh, YouTube channel. Well, it, that, as I say, it was when I started, um, when, I, when I got to the end of the microlight training, I think that the first two videos on my channel, which were appallingly bad, um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to watch them again now, um, were my two cross-country qualifying flights to Ince and Blackpool. Um, and I filmed those with one camera and the cockpit audio. And then, you know, I kind of got a taste for it after that. And I've, every time I make a video since, I always try and introduce a new technique because I did a TV and radio production degree at university in Sunderland. And it was meant to be TV and radio, but because I was a teenager and was a bit of a, I want to be the, you know, big I am at uni sort of thing. And I knew a bit about radio and I was already involved in the BBC. I just focused all my efforts on the radio station and I was kind of the guy from radio and I just didn't bother with TV because it seemed like a massive faff and editing is a pain in the backside and it takes <laughs> ages. And why would you want to have to light something and build a set and faff about with your background going off and all the rest of it <laughs> when you can just grab a microphone and get on with it? You know, radio is obviously the way to go. Do you know what I mean? All this trouble. Amen to that. To. Yeah. <laughs> but then... <laughs> but then eventually you know you you sort of get bitten by the bug and actually i i love video editing now it's a really creative thing to do and i kind of when i'm when i made that video outside the bbc saying i'm leaving it was kind of i'm leaving the bbc and i'm sort of leaving youtube because i thought well i'm not going to have any time to edit anything when i'm doing this course and i also had no idea whether or not heli center would be amenable to allowing me to film anything or or make any content that involved their aircraft so i thought well this may be it at the very least until years down the line i've got disposable income again and can start flying the microlights which i fully intend to do by the way um and you know so i i just sort of thought well that's that's the end of it but every time i do a video i try to introduce something new whether it's some sort of effect or a new bit of music or new edit technique or whatever and you know, this it, it just takes an inordinate amount of time. I mean, it's days and days and days to get a video down to the 19 or so minutes that I'm happy with, that I'm happy to <laughs> let sit on the internet forevermore. Yeah, oh, well, I mean, we, we very much feel your pain there, to be fair, Rory. We did a Christmas show um, that was, I think, was about one hour and 45 minutes long when it actually went out. Uh, I think I think John, our producer, totaled up, I think we'd spent about 90 hours uh, work to actually make that one hour, 45 minute video. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go to some listeners' questions now, actually. And one that really, uh, the, the geek in me is really sort of uh, uh, perks up on this one. This one's from Tony S. And, and he's saying that, uh, Rory, when you were at the BBC, were you ever used as an impromptu aviation expert? Uh, seems like there isn't much of that going on these days. Um, I, I've, had, I've got two stories about that, actually. One of them was <laughs> when I was very new. I was in my first week or two at the BBC World Service in London, and the World Service is a fantastic thing, but it's very much, good day, this is the BBC Home Service. <laughs> We're terribly posh, and we do everything properly. Um, I don't know what you mean. Uh, yeah, and and every, everyone's got their job, and if it's not your job, you ruddy well shut up and let us do our job. <laughs> And the technical people are the oily rag engineering technical people and the presenters and the reporters are gods and everybody lets them do their thing. So I'm sat there in this sort of office area where the technical people live. It's sort of like a man cave full of old 1960s equipment. Um, and this guy comes in. I can't remember his name, but he'd, he'd been a reporter at World Service for probably 20 or 30 years. And he came in and asked me to edit 
a voice piece, which is like a 40 second, you know, recording about a news story. And it was to do with the Air France crash. Oh, wow. And he'd referred to, he said something in his piece like, there was a blockage in the pilot tube. <laughs> and I said to right. him, I said, I'm terribly sorry, but you're going to have to go and re-record this. And he said, why? Nothing wrong with it? Yeah. And I said to him, well, I'm afraid there is. You've referred to the pilot tube and it's a pitot tube. So that's just a mistake. You're going to have to go and do it again. <laughs> so he huffed off out of the room. <laughs> my, my mates who sat in there with me, they said, God, you're ballsy, Rory. Why are you telling that? You know? I said, it's just wrong. You know, he'll get laughed out of court if that goes out on air. It's just a mistake. So off he went. And he came back about 20 minutes later with a new recording. And he said to me, he said, um, I think I owe you an apology, dear boy. Um, oh, wow. It turns out you're correct, and uh, I've re-recorded the voice piece, if you wouldn't mind editing that. And while I was editing it, he said to me, do you mind me asking how you knew that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. I was like, well, I'm a bit of an aviation geek, and it's kind of an obvious one when, when you're in that circle. So that was one time. And then much more recently, when I was working at Five Live, I think there was a story about an aircraft that had, had a bit of a crash landing at a grass runway, which was parallel to a road. I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in England. It was a light aircraft, like a PA-28 or something, had you know, hit some wires, I think, had gone into a, a grass runway. And the Jeremy Vine program, who I'd been working on the production team for a few weeks, a few months prior, called me up and said, will you come on and talk to Jeremy? And I'm a massive Jeremy fan. So I went on and he's like, so, Rory, good to have you on the program. Tell me, first of all, is aviation as dangerous as everybody thinks? And I was like... <laughs> No. <laughs> no, it's not, Jeremy. Good actually. impression, it's... by the way. Good impression. <laughs> Thanks very much. I pride myself on making a yeah, good yeah, impression. Quite. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was, that was a good one. Good fun as well. But, no, maybe that's something to carve out in the future once I actually become an expert, which will probably take 30 years or so. <laughs> we were actually considering at one stage uh, having a segment on the programme called Nev's Media Fails, where we would highlight which, uh, how many media fails there had been this week, whether it's you know, <laughs> identifying the wrong aircraft or, or the wrong uh, airfield or whatever. But we decided it would be so many, uh, we'd actually run the programme. <laughs> we'd have no show left. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> them out. Oh. Uh, but uh, just going back to the chat room for a second, uh, Chris, Chris Marsh uh, asks, um, if if you had to have an engine failure in one of the aircraft you were flying, would you prefer that to be in a fixed-wing aircraft or rotary? Oh, that's a great question, Chris. Um, the thing is about helicopters, they have got the, the gliding characteristics of a brick. Um, yes, but <laughs> a house but brick, could, to be precise. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get them into a tiny spot. So if you're if you're not needing to glide very far because there's a tennis court or a football pitch, you know, in the chin bubble, then, you know, if you do it right, you're home in a boat and you'll be able to walk away from it and use the aircraft again. Whereas, you know, one way or another, the aeroplane's going to be knackered. Um, if you've, you know, if you're more than a mile offshore and you aren't wearing a life jacket and don't fancy getting your feet wet, I'd take the aeroplane all day. Um, <laughs> might actually make the beach <laughs> so it's it's a difficult one it, it's it's part of the training you know as you guys all know that we we fly defensively and you're constantly sort of looking for somewhere that you might be able to go and and thinking about that and we you know we were a bit more cautious about flying over things that wouldn't make a, a happy landing surface in a single engine helicopter because the glide is is much less but 
in all honesty, having had the training I've had, I feel confident that I could make a decent fist of it in either of them. And I, I genuinely think all the stuff about helicopters not being safe is nonsense. I mean, Igor Sikorsky said himself, if you're in, if you're in peril, an aeroplane can come and drop flowers on you, but a helicopter can land and save your life. And we can now add winching into that as well. So, from the chat room to get through. I've got one here, and then uh, Nev's got a few as well. But we've got a quick one from Jonathan Warner, who is our military expert fan or military aviation fan um he's asking despite never getting into the military was there a type that you specifically wanted to fly ah oh, good question um well the lynx was always a, a pretty exciting oh, yeah. looking aircraft when i was younger um so i think i think probably the lynx i, I watched um there's a movie that a lot of you aviation dudes will have possibly seen. It's called Firebirds, Wings of the Apache, and it's a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> it's like a sort of knockoff version of Top Gun, but for the Apache. And it's pretty naff in many respects, but there's some nice flying it, and there's a lovely MD-500 as well, which I would have happily have a go in one of those. So I guess, though, Apache or the Lynx, probably. Wow. Uh, next question from uh, Mark Priestley. Uh, Mark says, uh, "How difficult? What was the uh, hardest part of your training?" Um, trying to do everything at once. I think um, you know each element of it is all well and good. Um, you know when you're tr sort of being taught it and trying to learn things, but getting myself psyched up for the the skill test at the end, the CPL skill test, where I knew that I had to act like a captain. I had to be spot on with the navigating. I had to be within plus or minus 100 feet, plus or minus 10 knots. And actually the, the school had taught us, you know, plus or minus 100 feet isn't good enough. You need to be plus or minus zero, which is good because, you know, train hard, test easy is a good, a good thing to have in your mind. But, you know, to begin with, the idea of being able to fly straight and level is daunting. And then throw in trying to read the map and oh what you want me to talk on the radio at the same time you must be having a laugh oh come on you're a broadcaster you do that in your sleep <laughs> yeah, I know but it's a completely different language isn't yeah, it you know, it is yeah it, the principle is talking on the radio but once you've got to know what you've got to say I mm. mean <laughs> what do you mean a basic service <laughs> actually Mark asked another question as well he sort of saying uh, what would be your ideal job in the world of helicopters what would you most love to do. Uh, I think that's pretty easy. I would love to do um, search and rescue. The idea of, you know, kind of getting back to the, the island community and offshore, the, the coast and the sea, um, you know, the camaraderie that I had with my colleagues in the studio at the BBC was amazing. And I can imagine that the camaraderie that you have in a, you know, four crew search and rescue aircraft where everyone relies on each other so that you can safely pluck somebody off a sinking trawler in the middle of the night in the dark in a force five that's that would focus the mind um, and the machinery that they use for it is incredible so search and rescue is something i aspire to do eventually um hems helimed stuff i would love to do that the idea of landing in a different place all the time and the kind of make it up as you go along element to it um obviously all within the sort of safe bounds but you, you know you've got to you've got to be reasonably creative and I, I like to think that i'm a reasonably creative person so the idea of being able to mold a bit of creativity and a bit of you know flying procedurally into one thing would be fantastic but to be honest if if somebody rang me up and said 
do you want a job? And it, it, it ticks the boxes, helicopters, and they pay me for it. I'm there. So it's, you know, I wouldn't say no to anything. Uh, Captain so, uh, Al makes Captain Al says in the, uh, the chat room, says, S-A-R, well, there goes the life insurance. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> I see. Uh, but he also says, now it's possible. When does Rory plan to land on Ouskerry? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that that is a major bucket list item. Even just the fly to Orkney um, was something that I was planning on doing in the aeroplane. I was kind of working myself up to that. But um, now, I, I, what I'd love to do on part of my hour building, once the COVID restrictions lift and hopefully we get into summer, is to get in a, an aircraft, probably the 44, because it's a bit quicker, and take Lizzie up to Orkney and hopefully fly out to Ouskerry and get get the the picture that i've stared at of the Balco 105 but with me standing in front of a helicopter that i actually got there in front of our lighthouse that would be that would be cool <laughs> we look forward to that picture Rory. absolutely yeah yeah. Do, yeah make sure you send it in to us actually make sure you be get great. that exact shot as well yeah <laughs> uh, yeah no I'll, I'll do my best i think the picture of the bill might be a bit of a worry but right we'll yeah. that bridge and we come <laughs> to it. minor details it's all details <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, look, Rory, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so very much for being so generous with your time today. Um, it's, uh, oh, uh, honestly, I, I've had a lot of fun. I don't know about you guys. But we do have to ask Brilliant. Rory the, the oh, final yes. question. Of course, yes, question. we must do that. The, yes. This could be interesting um, seeing as he's into Holocaust. Which we've given you no notice of whatsoever, Rory, I'm afraid. But uh, if, oh, you no. had the, <laughs> if you had the Get chance your to and credit cards out. any <laughs> aircraft at all, so it could be fixed wing, rotary, GA, uh, corporate jet, uh, commercial airliner, anything at all, either current uh, or military or past, uh, anything at all, what would it be? I know that everyone probably says this, and it it probably shows a. You'll probably think, oh, this is a lack of forethought from Rory. But (laughs) I have to say, the Spitfire, because it's so iconic. Yeah. And it's got such an amazing sound. Every time I hear one, I've heard a few over Leicestershire, and our head's hanging out the window, and I'm shouting at Lizzie, it's a Spitfire, it's a Spitfire. And she says, how do you know? I said, have you got ears? Like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, and why should I care? That sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're so rare, and, yeah. you know, they're just they're such a beautiful aircraft, and they represent so much of what's fantastic about this country. Mm. And I would just love to... You know, I, I would just love to fly one of those. So, okay, it's not a helicopter, but yeah, bucket list item. Get me in a Spitfire. But you can do just what you've got to do is find eight grand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know, but I could probably take a jet ranger to Orkney for the summer holidays if I had eight grand spare. So. <laughs> yeah, I wonder which one which, I'd rather do. Yeah. Well, absolutely. which one am I going to be able to sell to my wife? That's right. the key question. Yeah. 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 There is that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, want, do you want to go to La 2K in an EC120, Lizzie, or do you want me to go up in a Spitfire for half an hour and lord yeah. it up? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I suspect a negative response forthcoming. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's why God invented joint accounts. Right. Wow. God, you really, you really know, you really had no no fear, yeah. do you, Carlos? Right. She's not watching. <laughs> you, know, you know, my wife is. She's watching downstairs, and she's sitting in the room that has the internet router. So she could right. literally pull <laughs> yeah. the plug could on me right fall, now. Fall off air any minute. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you know? I'd, I'd forgotten Nev how good that that interview was with Rory. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Uh, we set it up qu- quite late on, but uh, no, he's a, a very convivial chap, very entertaining fella, and uh, I really enjoyed listening to it. His 
progression from, you know, working from the BBC, uh, then into light aircraft and, and helicopters. And now he's got his uh, commercial pilot's license, yeah. of course. So uh, that's absolutely brilliant. And he's got a new son, baby Jack, came along this year as well. So the lad is going to be very busy. <laughs> very, very oh, busy indeed. Yeah, absolutely. A very busy yeah. 2022 for him, no doubt. As I say, flying those weird things from Hogwarts, that's where they're made, right? Well, no, it's mad, isn't it? I, I still don't understand how no, the whole thing works. Me neither. I, I've l- looked at uh, you know videos and um, talked to people about it, but how helicopters no. fly is still a mystery to me. I have to say, producer John has tried to explain it to me at length because he said, you know, it's all about the physics and all that kind of thing. But I'm still completely lost. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody knows what they're doing with it anyway. Now, now one of the segment that I've chosen actually was a series uh, that we did a while back. Now, we're very lucky that we've been allowed to borrow Captain Nick from the airline pilot guy for some great interviews over the last couple of years, actually. Most recently with Mike Wildman, who was the amputee acrobatic pilot. That was a great series. I think you went to... When did you go down to film that, Ned? That was it amazing. It went down to Henstridge uh, Airfield. Uh, just in uh, Gloucestershire there and it was a beautiful day down there yeah. actually. it was fantastic so I was going to say it was the only sunny day that the UK nice had change. I think last year <laughs> yeah. we had a film outside yeah. but uh, no uh, Mike and uh, Nick was superb uh, on that because they had flown together uh, previously uh, on the A340 as well which made the whole engagement oh I bet know, even better so uh, indeed great but uh, yeah but your one uh, here matt is uh, very interesting absolutely yeah so it was a, it was a series of interviews that we did with nick it was unusual in the fact that we weren't oh, because it was right in the middle of a very difficult time obviously it was right in the middle of the pandemic when we filmed this particular thing and it's the first time that we've done an interview of this size if you like down uh, down the line uh, and it was absolutely fascinating uh, captain nick caught up with the legend that is george lee MBE and we were uh, learning all about his amazing military and more mostly towards the end obviously his incredible gliding career I mean he was a world champion more than once absolutely fascinating fellow and we caught up with him the part that I've chosen for today was where he's telling us all about his time teaching Prince Charles to fly a glider. When you got back to the UK, um, you were in the Nationals, placed second. But more importantly, perhaps, the country honoured you for your achievements. Uh, Firstly, with the Royal Aero Club's gold medal, which I might point out is only awarded for outstanding achievements. Um, And you joined the ranks of uh, previous aviators like the Wright Brothers, Blériot, Alcock and Brown, even the Apollo 11 astronauts, a fine company. That was a remarkable thing to be given, yes? Yes, I was honoured to get a lot a lot of different honours, uh, medals, Nick. I don't have a, an awful lot of huge memory points from those presentations, apart from they were given by different members of the royal family, many of them. Prince Charles gave a couple, Prince Andrew gave a couple, and Prince Philip gave, I believe from memory, the Air League Founders Medal. So that was, that, 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 that was absolutely wonderful. But one, one award was, uh, uh, was the MBE. And interestingly, it was actually awarded on the civil list as opposed to the military list. So Marin and my mother we, and I, of course, in my best uniform, went off to Buckingham Palace to um, 
to receive that. And that, that, that was a great honor. And, but no tremendous memories from the day. A lot of people were getting a lot of different things. So yeah, but nonetheless, great honor. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, the royal family, uh, 78 saw you uh, at RAF Bista for a number of flights with royalty, and you uh, took Prince Charles, uh, then I guess uh, a reasonably young man, uh, the heir to the throne up in uh, a grob, I believe. Did he enjoy himself? He did, Nick. It was a private visit, so uh, the man could actually relax. He didn't have a lot of hangers on. It was very informal. Uh, I remember waiting out by the entrance gates at Bicester for his arrival and looking and seeing this open top Aston Martin coming down the road. And there was HRH at the wheel with his private detective lounging on the back seat. <laughs> but the intention was to do a 100 kilometer triangle, uh, triangular cross country course. And it would have been wonderful. I felt very disappointed because the British weather just did not cooperate. There was no way we were going cross country, just impossible. And I often wondered what it would have been like had we gone and landed out and curious people might have come and said, has anybody ever told you, you look remarkably like Prince Charles? Oh, that would have been great. But anyway, we did a lot of aerobatics. And at one stage I thought, dare I do a beat up with the heir to the throne? Hmm. Well, never mind. My career is at stake, but here we go. So blasted off down the airfield and did a beat up at very low level, pulled up and landed on one downwind landing again below normal minimum circling altitude. I felt, ooh, got a little bit of lift here. Dare I throw a turn or oh, what the heck I will. And it was enough and it hooked into it and it developed. And we actually climbed up to 3000 feet from you know, fairly low altitude. So at least it gave him a little taste of what gliding is about. He loved it. I think he really enjoyed it. And um, he's got a wonderful sense of humor, Prince Charles. We went in for our lunch break and I was ushering him into what is normally the, the briefing room and all laid out of the finest silver and linen and everything else for HRH. He stopped at the doorway, had a quick look around and turned around. And he said to me, I suppose it's always like this, isn't it? <laughs> I thought that was priceless. No, it, oh, it, very it, good it, indeed. It was a lovely visit, Nick. Can I move forward now to the defence of your world championship, this time in France? Um, unless there's anything else you particularly want to cover in the lead up to that. But how did that competition go? I had the same regular loyal crew chief, a different crew member, but they knew each other well. No, no problems there. We went to a French Air Force base called Romorantin for the pre-practice period practice. <laughs> so I, I had a lot of time and the weather was dreadful. It rained and rained. So we polished and fettled and polished and fettled. The glider was perfect. And towards the very last day, suddenly the sun came out and wow, we got the glider ready, towed out to the launch point. The French towed their gliders out. There was a French civil gliding club there as well. And they parked them and off they went. This was lunchtime. This is the French lunch. It's very serious. And the tug pilot came out and he parked his plane and he was about to go off for lunch. I couldn't believe it. I went over and said, please, please, just one towel before lunch. And bless him, he gave in. And I went and did 600 kilometers or something. And the French came out after their lunch and flew 250, 300. So I do recall that. The event itself was probably the most straightforward of the world championships. The weather was generally consistent. 
uh, not booming strong weather, but good, good, solid, consistent weather. On one memorable day, I was the only person of any class, there were three classes by now, uh, to actually get home. And that was the most marginal final glide I've ever had in my life. We topped up at the top of a fire that was going. Other gliders are way down low. There's no way they're getting home. And I milked it for all I could and set off for Chateau which was the big French airfield with monster runways and parallel taxiways. I had a Belgian open-class pilot off my left wing, but he was a bit lower and he wasn't going to make it for sure. And I didn't think I was going to make it. And I just pressed on, looking at the instruments, any movement of the air, just gently following it until finally I saw I was going to creep over the airfield boundary. The only problem was there's still two kilometers of concrete before the finish line, minor problem. So I just, yeah, squeezed the buttocks and carried on <laughs> and on and on, floating, floating, floating until finally, I'm not going to scrape the belly of the glider. I just have to drop the gear now. So I dropped it and touched and just rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. It's fortunately a smooth surface. And they even able to apply a tiny bit of air brake having crossed the finish line. So that was a, that was a very memorable uh, day. Uh, the I final was going to call you a bit um, of a show off there, uh, Josh. <laughs> but that is remarkable. That should be squeezing over the line like that. That's brilliant. The final day worked as it should work. My open clean class teammate, the same guy, he was out of contention. So he was uh, quite legally helping me to maintain my overall lead. So he was a certain number of kilometers ahead and by code, he was reporting back thermal strengths. So that was helpful to a reasonable degree at least. And I think I, think I got third for the day, which was enough to cement uh, the overall victory. Um, now, um, you quite rightly received many accolades uh, for your second world championship in a row, but uh, the icing on the cake, perhaps, you were invited to the palace again, this time to dine with the royal family. What a lovely thing that must have been. Now, that was, that was, that was very, very special. That actually happened in 79, and the telegram arrived when we were in Cyprus, I recall. So I flew back and um, this was a very different event and so much more meaningful to be perfectly honest. There were 10 guests uh, and then of course the Queen and Prince Philip. So we waited in this huge big lounge room waiting for Her Majesty to arrive and heard the corgis yapping, here she comes, so in she comes. And uh, there's a little group around her. And every so often, you'd, one person would get a gentle tug on the elbow, and that person would be just slid out of the group, and another person slid in. The lunch itself, of course, was special in a lovely little room. Uh, I was seated next to the Bishop of Oxford, I recall. But the one thing I do remember, I was feeling pretty nervous. Not yet. <laughs> I really was. But the one thing I do remember was a very animated conversation between Claire Francis, the yachtswoman of fame, with uh, Prince Philip. That was, she was, she was certainly not nervous. <laughs> but then afterwards, after the lunch, this is where it got special for me, because we had the same setup after the lunch in this lounge room. And to this day, I cannot remember how it happened. But somehow, I ended up with just the Queen and myself side by side at the front window of this lounge room, this big bay window looking up the mall. And we were watching preparations being made for a state visit uh, the following week. And we were just chatting 
as, as you would to a neighbor over a fence. It was absolutely remarkable. So that was just so wonderful. She's a wonderful woman, absolutely wonderful. Well, George, it seems that the RAF, uh, in their wisdom, uh, were going to give one of their finest pilots a, a grand tour. But then again, if you're going to have a grand tour, the one you were given has to be, uh, you know, um, an absolutely wonderful uh, thing to, to do. Uh, you were on the tactical leadership program in Germany, weren't you? Yes, Nick, uh, you've summed that up very well. It was indeed a very special tour, quite extraordinary in so many ways. Firstly, well, it was on a German Air Force base itself, under a Ger the, the unit TLP under a German commandant with a multinational staff, one Belgian, German, uh, and then Brits and Americans. Uh, the, TLP pro the TLP was actually under AFSI as opposed to NATO, that's Allied Air Force of Central Europe. The main difference being that AFSI didn't have any money. But anyway, the, the, the program itself was superb. There's no other way to describe it. And prior to going on staff, I actually went and did the course myself with my, with my regular navigator. We went over there to uh, the base, which was called Jever, up in the far north of Germany, not that far from the North Sea, actually. And uh, the, the course was multi mission we had six air defense aircraft on each course and then 12 ground attack aircraft and we started off with the gentle stuff a bit of medium level di dissimilar air combat all, all of that sort of stuff before bringing you bringing the, the serious stuff on down into the low level regime and the air defenders would be mounting their their cap waiting for the ground attack package uh, to come through and when they see them launch at them so the mission intensity and complexity developed as the course went on and towards the latter part of the course they actually brought in the american aggressors which was tremendous because the aggressors is a specialist american union uh, unit flying f5s painted in full soviet color scheme and the tactics that they employed were Soviet tactics and they were very disciplined in doing that. So from a training value perspective, the aggressors were magnificent unit to train in, very, very realistic. But having mentioned the aggressor, there was one incident we had when I was on staff, actually. The aggressors were out there on their own little cap waiting for the ground attack package. And one, uh, one of the aggressor pilots, he, he didn't see the package until very late. It was visual lookout. The F-5 doesn't have look down uh, radar. He saw them very late, rolled over, pulled down to get in behind them. Only he misjudged uh, the pull down and he overcooked it. Didn't pull hard enough, I guess. And he saw the ground looming up at a rather remarkably uh, disturbing rate. And he carried on and he actually glanced the earth. He, he impacted, but only a glancing blow, back up and ejected. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> what, what, what an amazing thing within an inch of death. Well, quite so. Uh, I don't know. Incredible. But the course itself, I could feel myself when I did the course getting sharper each mission. It was that environment, just tremendous flying, exciting, adrenaline pumping flying. And, and flying with had, some of the best pilots picked from uh, each of the air forces. 
Uh, normal operational squadron, operational pilots, I would say, but it was an environment where they were away from all the squadron pressures and stuff, and we gelled, bonded well together, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. That, and an um, amazing variety of aircraft types actually on, would come on the course. A huge number from A-10 Warthogs all the way up F-15s, even F-11s, and, and everything in between. And these uh, nations were encouraged for uh, to please bring along two-seaters so the staff members could actually get airborne on these missions because otherwise one is relying on pilot reports, which probably a little bit less than fully accurate at times. <laughs> <laughs> so so got I got some flying in. I got to fly in a tremendous range of two-seat aircraft. Excellent. Harrier, Mirage, F-16. My favorite by far was the F-15. I fell in love with that aircraft and I thought, oh, why didn't we buy the F-15? It was just gorgeous. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. So a a great experience. And in between courses, uh, we were required to keep current on our own types. So I went down to Wildenrath and flew the F-4 the squadrons were given that little bit of extra hours allowance and I alternated between 19 and 92 squadron and they were very generous and um, in, in hosting me. So I'm very appreciative of that. Well, it sounds like a great uh, time you had. You were able to get into the American PX and buy all their wonderful steaks and even come home with a duty-free car. I didn't uh, feel jealous at all uh, up there in northern Scotland. Um, so the TLP was uh, actually not far from where you were going to fly the next, your third world championship. Um, so that must have been quite handy. Wasn't that George Lee interview fantastic? I mean, it's just one of a you know series of uh, mm. parts that that we did. And, of course, we had to get equipment down to him yes. in Australia as well, I seem to recall. Yes, that, uh, that Microphones what, and all sorts of bits and pieces. I know. This is, this is the trouble, isn't it? He, he did have a webcam. That was one thing that, that was it. But it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite the technical challenge, and I, I was delighted it turned out the way it did. And, of course, don't forget, I mean, because we've got a great series of interviews there. That, as I say, it was the first time that I had to do something on my own. This first one that you'd not been involved in, Nev, to be fair. But uh, there was this, uh, as I say... We, uh, of course, we had uh, uh, John Hutchinson, didn't we? That that's uh, available for you to watch on YouTube, of course, in the George Lee series as well. That's uh, all available. And uh, there's one more, isn't there? I seem to remember. Yeah, there was yeah. The, the big one. The first one we did with Sir Richard Johns. Of course, it was. Yes, former chief of the air staff. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was uh, that was fantastic. And yeah. uh, I'm looking at comments e- even now. People are still yeah. looking at it on YouTube, and there's new comments going on there yeah. all the time, and uh, yeah. they are all very positive. I'm Absolutely, pleased. it's been a great. Great series of interviews, as I say, and uh, George Lee was no exception. So we'll move on now, and I think we're off to the boys in the States now, aren't we? We are, yes. So let's go to Armando and see what his favourite was of 2021. Okay, as we're talking about favourite segments for 2021, it was actually pretty hard to to pick him. I think the five of us had to fight for (laughs) which ones were our favourites. Carlos and I were having lunch yesterday and we were talking about how this year we we feel that as a show we really took the show to a, a new level as far as the quality of guests that we had, the quanti- the quality of, of production that uh, Nev and the team was putting together. But I think one of my favorite episodes from this year was the Around the World special. 
it wasn't planned as a special. It turned out to be a special. But our guests that day were Shasta Weiss and Travis Ludlow, who both flew around the world. And Shasta was the, the youngest woman to do so. And Travis um, ended up bring, breaking that record when he was 18 years old this, this year. Um, so I, I thought it was really interesting to just watch the two of them and kind of listen to the two of them talk about their experiences, uh, their shared experiences, and then how, the, how their trips were just a little bit different from each other. So um, that was, I think, my favorite uh, segment for 2021. So here it is. So I suppose the question to ask, and I suppose is, um, well, obviously we'll talk about the solo flight a bit later, but uh, where did uh, the aviation bug start with you? Oh, God, I don't have your traditional aviation story. Um, <laughs> quite honestly, I grew up terrified of airplanes. Uh, and re really, the reason for that was, is the any time or the only time I would see an airplane was usually on the television because of an aircraft accident. So in my head, I just thought airplanes, that's what they do. They crash. And um, so I, for me, I, I tried to to avoid flying. Um, and that changed when I had graduated from high school. Uh, I was uh, 18 years old boarding a Delta Airlines flight. And it was the first time I had ever traveled on an airplane. The, well, really, the first time I ever traveled was when my family left as refugees from Afghanistan. So this was the first time where I could really understand what was going on. And there is a passenger back in like seat 30 something, middle seat. Um, I, I just, I fell in love with aviation. As soon as it was wheels up, it, it, I the, the aviation bug had bit me and it's just been this, this love for flying ever since. What was the first uh, aircraft you, uh, you, you flew yourself in? A Cessna 172, which was a trainer oh. at my university. <laughs> yeah. So you, you hit the 172s before the 150s. <laughs> well, you went yeah. the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, Shasta, was... while we have you on, actually, and we have yeah. Travis on. Now, Travis flew a 172, a, a Jet A powered with a diesel engine 172 around the world. Now, you flew around the world in what kind of airplane? A BE, uh, Beechcraft Bonanza A36, BE36. Okay. So, what were, now, uh, Travis was telling us about choosing a Jet A powered airplane. I'm taking advantage of having both of you guys here so you guys can compare notes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> of course. So he said one of the challenges was was finding Avgas and you flew yeah. in a Bonanza that is that is an Avgas powered airplane. What, right. Would you have done that different nowadays or looking back? You know, as I was looking into an airplane to fly around the world, I heard a lot from past Earthrounders. If you can avoid Avgas or going into a country where they're kind of telling you that they're going to have Avgas, avoid it. Um, and they were very keen on telling me to skip Egypt if I could, because apparently there was in the past people who flown into Egypt, they were promised Avgas, but it was never there once they showed up. So I had a lot of hesitation going into it, but I was very fortunate because ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, they were a big sponsor of the global flight. And I had met a lot of the diplomats from the countries that I was flying into. And I just remember going into their offices and saying, hey, so about Avgas, it's going to be there, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Don't worry about that. Um, so having that, those conversations with the government, 
ahead of time really ensured that I would find Avgas along my stop. Um, but yes, I've heard stories about people, you know, being stuck and yeah, I can't even imagine. Well, I have some questions for Travis. Congratulations, Travis. I'm so proud of you. You're, you're such, so accomplished at such a young age. And, um, you know, I, I kind of know what you went through and I give you props. Um, the one thing that in the Earth Rounder community, when we've always gotten together, we've always asked each other, would you do it again? And I'm just curious to know what your answer is. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, my, uh, I, I think uh, I think I definitely would do it again. I'm actually I actually like to do it again in a uh, electric aircraft. Maybe uh, break the yeah. world record of the first flight around the world in an electric aircraft. So that's uh, wow. definitely something I'd like to do. Yeah. Oh, very good. My answer to that was no. Like, unless if it's a jet or uh, an airplane that, you know, no, there, no way. There's no need, but um, good for you. Really, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah, I, mean, I, I definitely want to do it in, uh, in uh, quite uh, uh, probably a, a few years in the future. I want to have a good break. Yeah, of course. <laughs> a, good time to, a good time to forget the difficulties of the trip. Very good. Indeed. Uh, Travis, I mean, is, would would you like? I mean, would you love to be like do what Armando does, basically, and sort of fly commercial? Jet? Would you love to be a pilot? You know, for real? Yes, I, I absolutely. I, I definitely want to. Uh, I continue to work in uh, in, in aviation, and uh, yeah, definitely want a career in that, work professionally in that. So yeah, that's definitely something I'm, I'm very very interested in doing. I'm just not not sure where I'm going to do that. Where where, where I'm going to do that with or who yet? What would be that one piece of advice that you would both give a young kind of either a school leaver somebody or somebody who's still at school you know who's maybe watch as you say watch this or, or has been following yeah. bo- both of your journeys uh what's what's the, the one years? piece of advice that you, you would both both give a young, a young person um you know for me it was definitely a confidence issue because i i hadn't grown up around aviation and i came into it very late so my advice whether you've aviation has been a part of your life or not, is to get involved. And I mean that in the sense of, um, you know, there's so much virtual opportunities now. If you can go to a conference or go to your local airport, introduce yourself. I mean, we've all been there where we've been at an event for the very first time as aviators. You know, whether you are, whether, like, it doesn't matter where you fall in aviation, everyone has had that moment where they've gone to an event with no experience and all this passion. So we get it. Um, go out there, introduce yourself, make friends, have conversations, really make aviation a part of your your community um, because it really comes down to we are a very small community and we all love aviation so much. So. Mm. You know, it, it just make that effort, get involved and, and make it part of your everyday. You know, that really helped me a lot with my confidence. And Travis. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, what I'd say is, uh, and especially to uh, to uh, the younger generation and, uh, you know, especially as well, aspiring pilots is to you know, continue to just uh, uh, keep aiming for your goals and your dreams and uh, uh, no matter what happens, no matter what uh, you know, events happen in your uh, life that may put you down, no matter no matter what anyone may say, um, uh, just keep pushing towards your goals, and uh, you know, eventually you you can achieve these dreams. You know, I had uh, uh, so many times in uh, in the especially in the UK, I had a lot of people who uh, 
who thought um, uh, that I was, you know, I was essentially going to kill myself by doing this. So people actually told me that directly, and uh, and I feel like that's, uh, uh, you know, that uh, you know, could be part of the uh, the UK's. Uh, you know, we we liked it. We're quite old-fashioned pilots uh, here, so it's uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, something uh, yeah, quite strange for for a lot of these pilots. So, but yeah, I mean, no matter what, no matter what happens, just you don't don't let anybody put you down. Just keep pushing, keep uh, aiming, and uh, you'll achieve your goals. Yeah, that really was such a fascinating uh, interview, wasn't it? And it was just, I mean, the guy's so young as well. Travis was just so young. <laughs> I can't remember if he has got. Um... Uh, an aviation license before a driving license i think he yes he no yeah yeah yep. he's only in fact if i remember correctly because i still follow him on on instagram i think he he has only literally recently just passed his driving test so he did have his commercial pilot's license before he had his driving license which just melts my mind <laughs> I know, and um, I'm hoping to meet up with him again soon, actually, because he's, he's almost a neighbour of mine. Oh, just wow. In the, in the next village or yeah. a couple of villages down from me, and he flies out of uh, Booker um, Aerodrome at High Wycombe. So, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to meet up with him again and uh, find yeah. out the latest news that he has to report. Indeed, so, absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and, and she still was a fantastic interviewer as well, wasn't she? She was... Uh, uh, the interaction between both of them actually was fascinating, sort of exchanging stories or, of, the, you know, comparing notes, if you like, because they've both more or less done a similar challenge it's just bonkers isn't it yeah one of the things i like about doing our podcast is that we get the chance to listen to aviators speaking and interacting with Mm. each other and i think it's absolutely fascinating series of conversations that that can go on so uh, no absolutely brilliant so uh, yeah well done to both of them and thanks to both of them for uh, contributing to uh, to the show so much absolutely absolutely okay we're gonna go back to the states then and it's carlos's turn to, to let us know which segment was his favorite in 2021 now, for me, uh, one of my favourite interviews we had on the show was with Mike Ling from the Blades Aerobatic Display Team. And uh, this is a group of guys and uh, ladies who I've seen um, at various air displays across the UK at uh, various points in the year. They've been really active, especially in uh, before uh, 2019 when they were at uh, the Seething Air Display back in the day when we used to have an air show there. But uh, we... Uh, Got in touch with Mike, and he very kindly came onto the show, and uh, we had a chat with Mike, and it was a great interview, so uh, here it is. It gives me great pleasure to welcome onto the show Blade 3, a.k.a. Mike Ling. Welcome, Mike. Hello, gents. How are you doing? Very well. Nice to have you on, Mike. How are things uh, where you are in the UK? Well, thanks for having me on. I'm at... um... A very windy and wet Sywell Aerodrome, which is where the blades are based. I, I too live in Buckinghamshire, actually. So when I left home this morning, it was pretty grim and I didn't expect to fly today. And unfortunately, the three flights I had planned got cancelled. So, uh, yeah, a very wet and windy Northamptonshire where I am right now. Where did um, aviation uh, kick off with you? I grew up in Biggin Hill, which I'm sure most of your listeners know was a, is a very famous Second World War Battle of Britain airfield just outside London. It was very pivotal in the Battle of Britain as a sector station. Every year there was an air show there, the Biggin Hill Airfair, and I went there from, from when I was one year old right up till I joined the Royal Air Force at, at 19. But it was around about my third birthday, so give away my age now, 1982, when I <laughs> saw the Red Arrows, and my mother says that's when I first said I want to be a Red Arrows pilot. So I fell in love with aeroplanes, absolutely. You know, I, I said I wanted to be a pilot did what I needed to do at school I joined the air cadets and then after school after my A-levels I I joined the air force as a direct entrant and started my officer training and flying trainings which you know it was as a youngster relatively it was it was fantastic what an experience that was 
So, Mike, how did the move uh, to join the Red Arrows come around? Well, there, there are a certain number of criteria you need to have before you can apply to join the Red Arrows. It's completely voluntary. As we said, you're not posted there. You, you have to want to do it and have put the application in. So these criteria are you have to have 1,500 hours of fast jet flying. You have to be assessed as above average and you have to have completed a frontline operational tour. Now, by that, it means I mentioned already that, that creamy tour, the being a creamy instructor. So you can get 1,500 hours by being a creamy you haven't done your frontline tour, so you're not eligible to apply. So as soon as I was eligible, i.e. year two of my time on the front line in the tornado, I thought, right, I'll put an application in for the Reds now. I've got these criteria ticked off. So I put the application in, not expecting in the slightest to be selected, but I was totally gobsmacked when they invited me forward for the shortlist, which is when they down-select the applicants to nine, from, from about 30, 35 applicants down to nine, and then those nine go away for a week-long selection process. So I went to this selection process, which at the time was in Cyprus at RAF Akrotiri, and had a week of flying three times in the back of the jets, doing a, a very intense flying call, uh, flying test, doing a, an interview with three very senior officers who you know, threw lots of nasty questions at us, and doing, most importantly, the peer, peer review, peer testing. So you'd meet the team and just socialize with them, interact with them day in, day out. And, and they would, could see you, your entire personality from sort of one end of the spectrum to the other. And then they would choose from those nine, two or three, depending on the need for the following year. So that's, that's how it came about. I applied in my second year on the Tornado. And amazingly, I was completely gobsmacked when I was selected to join. I mean, you've, you've been very kind and sort of spoken about, obviously, your time with the Red Arrows and things. And, and Mike has got a really interesting question, actually, saying, so, I mean, the Red Arrows are phenomenal, there is no doubt. But as you've already mentioned, there are sort of other display teams as well. Now, obviously, your your current mission, for want of a better word, is is with the Blades. I'd be fascinated to sort of hear how the two styles compare um, and, and how things are obviously, you know, it's a different display team and, and, and the differences you've found, really. What I'd say about all the jet teams around the world is that, they, yes, they're broadly similar and their, their mission is generally the same, which is to showcase the, the best of their service or their country. And, and I've been very fortunate in working a lot with the European teams, the Spanish, the Italians, the French, the, and, and working with the US teams and the Canadian team I mentioned already, but also the Russians and the Chinese teams. You know, I've been very fortunate to have worked with them as well. They all do a similar job in, in promoting their services and their countries. But what is amazing to see is they all have their different uh, attributes. So the aircraft they fly dictates the type of display they fly. So you might see that the Blue Angels fly an incredibly tight display. They fly very, very close together. Uh, but the FAA rules on display flying are very different to European rules. So their display is built around those display rules. And likewise, the Europeans are the same. One amazing formation that stands out is we were in China doing a display and the Russians were there. And they had, I think it was a four ship of a four ship of SU-27s and a five ship of MiG-29s, but they flew it as a nine ship display. So if you can picture a Diamond 9, but with the massive SU-27 in among the, the relatively tiny MiG-29, and they did an amazing display. So the aircraft is different for most display teams. There are some that obviously have the same aircraft being namely, the, I guess the Italians and the UAE display team have the Mackie, but they, all do different things with those aircraft and everything stands out brilliantly. But the best thing is meeting the people that do it is they're all so very proud to display, to showcase their services and their country. So it's been a real privilege for that. When it comes to my day job now, flying with the Blades aerobatic team, now we are very different. We're, we're a four ship civilian piston engine aerobatic team flying aerobatic aircraft. So 
we are all ex-Red Arrows pilots. That's our, our, our unique selling point, if you like. But we, our primary role is actually offering passenger experiences. So oh, the wow. idea is that people who have seen the Red Arrows often say, well, can I go flying with the Red Arrows? Sadly, the answer is no. It's a military aircraft. We can't, the, the team can't take people flying. But it was a Red Arrows, a former Red Arrows leader who set up the blades back in 2006 and saw a gap in the market. Thought, well, I can offer, we can offer passenger experiences doing close formation aerobatics. So the Blades was, was established in 2006 as the world's only aerobatic airline. And that's, that's the day job. We put people in the front of the extra 300 and we fly them a couple of meters away from their mates going upside down. So it's, uh, that is day job. And what we do to generate interest in those passenger experiences is we'll go to air shows and do flying displays. So our display lasts about 15 minutes of four ship formation. We do lots of gyroscopic aerobatics and, and synchro pair-esque maneuvers. But the beauty of the extra 300 is that the display is very tight there's always something happening in front of the crowd and you can keep it very close whereas with the jet displays they tend to take up quite a lot of airspace and room so it's very different flying the aircraft because it's designed purely for aerobatics and unlike the hawk for the red arrows which is designed for weapons training and fast jet training well wasn't that a great interview with uh, mike uh, yeah. fascinating character and uh, again another one of these people that has just been so generous yeah with his time and the stories that you get from these people yeah. are phenomenal and mike's career has been tremendous hasn't it so we quite like to do a special show every now and again that nev and we put an awful lot of work into uh, something quite unique and this was actually john producer john's uh, choice for 2021 and of course that was the women in aviation special Yes, it was. And it took a lot of teeing up. But mm. boy, was it worth it. I mean, it was a absolutely fantastic uh, show. Um, well, I, I was just in awe of it and sitting yeah. downstairs uh, watching it, actually, because yeah. obviously uh, Carlos and I weren't on the show. Yes, we, 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 we all had a night off. It was lovely. <laughs> we were. We sort of sat, there, sat there watching it. It was truly, truly amazing. As you say, it took a long time to, to, to tee everything up and uh, hosted by Dr. Steph and Jody Ruger. And of course, Ariel Tweeto and Megan Carrion, of course, a certain a certain better half to a certain Armando who also lives across the pond. It was an amazing, amazing show. Uh, this and here are a few some of the highlights from that particular episode. Women in Aviation special. In this week's show, uh, we're going to forego the traditional show format, and we're going to be hearing from some amazing women from all aspects of aviation. Uh, we still have some stories to get uh, to get in, um, to get to know some of these women and the efforts that they're undertaking for their different organizations. Uh, but we'll kind of have a more roundtable format of the show, and we've got all kinds of uh, interesting segments and fun hosts joining me. So. Uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's see who's on the show today. So um, I think everyone here knows me, so I'm going to keep my introduction brief. Um, if, if you're tuning into this, yes, you found the correct show. This is actually Plane Talking UK. It is not the Airline Pilot Guy show, which you might um, uh, be familiar with if you've seen me before anywhere. Um, I am here. I'm a commercial multi-engine pilot. I do skydiving operations on the weekends. Sometimes I jump out of the planes as well, 
all kinds of other hobbies, marathon running, and my full-time job as a doctor. So joining me this week um, from the hit Discovery Channel TV show, Flying Wild Alaska, a private pilot, TV, film, and actor, and producer, it's Ariel Tweedo. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Awesome. We're doing great here. Looking forward to a fun-packed show. So we'll get to know you a little bit more, but I'm sure folks mostly know who you are already, but we've got some interesting wow. interviews coming up. Um, also joining us, she's worked in the medical sector for many years. She's an aviation enthusiast by proxy, a fierce feminist and advocate for equality. Megan has had loads of flying experience in all sorts of aircraft as a passenger. She's made aviation a part of her family, attending the Reno Air Races and EAA Air Venture at Oshkosh. It's Megan Carrion. Hello. I am very excited to be here. Uh, I am going to be sitting in for Matt today because my experience in aviation is definitely from a passenger's perspective. Um, though I have jumped out of airplanes and I've <laughs> sat right seat with controls in my control <laughs> uh, once. So yeah, that's my that's my limited aviation experience. But I'm excited to be here and share stories. Uh, plenty of aviation experience, I would say. So. <laughs> Uh, more on that to come. And our next host is a fantastic airshow pilot. She's an aerobatics instructor, an airline pilot, and TikTok aviation educator. Uh, Jody has flown approximately, get this, 95 types of aircraft, including her Pitts S1s and Thunder Mustang. It's Jody Ruger. Hi, guys. I brought my Pitts and the Thunder Mustang today, so we're going to have some fun. Yes, definitely the best um, aviation background for the, the show today. So I had a unique upbringing. I grew up in a family. My grandpa was one of the first Native American pilots to start an airline. My dad started an airline. All my aunties and uncles fly. My sisters fly. So it wasn't really a matter of if I was going to get my pilot's license. It was always just when I was going to do it. And I've said it before, so I'm like I'm not afraid of, of the FAA right now because I'm not flying. But um, but like I mean legally I didn't get my pilot's license till I was like 20 or something but then I've been I mean me and my sisters had our hands on the yokes by the time we were like three or something so it's just it's always it's always been in our blood and it's awesome but and I know like Jody, you should tell your story of how you got into flying and I'm sure we'll talk about that more later too yeah so I figured out I wanted to fly at a pretty young age I was 12, um, but I didn't have any family in aviation, so it was very uncharted territory for me. And I made friends with somebody who was in Air Cadets, and they brought me along with them. So I earned my scholarship through Air Cadets, and I got my private pilot license when I was 18. But I've been studying for it since I was like 14 to try and get it going. And I found that if you start from a young age, it's definitely easier because there's more resources available to help the youth out. Um, so that was definitely an asset in, in just getting into aviation and just jumping in headfirst, regardless of the fact that I didn't know anything about planes or aviation when I started out. So it's really cool that you had a family to, to take you under your wing and like try out the controls before. And that was always like a huge dream of mine. So I didn't get to try my first uh, fan flight till I was like 16, but I was just hooked. So we're going to spend a little bit of time just uh, talking to one another and introducing ourselves to the listeners. And um, I'm going to uh, spend a little bit of time talking to Ariel to get started. So, um, yeah. Uh, so thinking back to when you were on the show last, that was episode 327. So I, John, tell me how long ago that was here. Do we know? July. Okay. So, so July of last year. Yeah. Of okay. last year. 
Yeah, I know. Last 2020 was such a yeah. blur. Uh, I don't even know what it is anymore. I know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I do so know this Friday. It is. Yes. Yes. That's, a start. That's a start. That's a start. Doing real good. <laughs> so you were on that episode uh, back in July, 327, and they, you guys talked a lot about how aviation was a part of your family. We kind of talked about that already a little bit, but for anyone who's been living under a rock and doesn't know about you or your family, can you um, just share a little bit more maybe about um, what it was like growing up in your family? Everyone was aviation-minded. Yeah, well, it was the only thing I knew. Um, I grew up in a small village in Alaska, and the only way in and out is by airplane. And so, I mean, from a young age, I've, I knew I wanted to fly because I knew I wanted to get out of the village. And so I was like, well, that, I guess I need to learn, get some wings before I could leave here. But um, so that was the thing. But I was just, I was so lucky growing up the way I did because I, I mean, I, I'm obsessed with my parents. I love my parents so much and they're the most supportive people. And so I'll be super honest, like flying was never the thing that I wanted to do as a career. Like I knew I, I love flying and I'm passionate about it, but I, I've always wanted to work in TV and film and like Betty White and um, Dick Van Dyke. Like those are my people. Like I wanted to be caught like in comedy and all, and I love making people laugh and I like making people smile but um, flying is just a tool that would help me get there because I was really fortunate that our flying show opened a lot of career doors for me. And, and now like, mm -hmm. I'm super proud to say that I can fly and that I, like, I, like I do fly, but um, it's, it definitely helped open all these other opportunities for me. But yeah. So back to your question, growing up in the village was, um, made me who I am. It like made me like, uh, made, I'm proud that I'm an indigenous person. I'm proud that I'm part Norwegian. I'm proud that I have two sisters and then I dog race. And I think this, uh, I'm a lot more complex than just being just a pilot or a woman or whatever. I think there's a lot more to all that, but I'm super grateful and lucky that I grew up where I did. And um, I love going back home. Oh, for sure. I mean, so I've definitely watched episodes of the show. Uh, it's, it's a really fascinating look into, um, basically, I mean, just life in Alaska yeah. in general, too, because that's so different for those of us who live in other parts of the world or even other parts of the United States. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, and I live in the South now, and it's it's definitely not the same. You can get places on road. I mean, I know you're not living in Alaska in a small village anymore, but very different when you can just get in the car and go places or or have easy access to other places oh, around the world. So that awesome. definitely is is really super interesting. Um, you talked a little bit about your family, speaking of women in aviation things, your mom, Ferno, was a big part of the, the business as well. Um, can you, did she get into that um, just because it was part of the family, because she, because it was what your dad was doing? How did she? Yeah. Well, my mom, my mom started flying before my dad. And oh. So, so here's a fun woman, like strong woman fact. So my grandpa started Ryanair, but my grandma my grandma bought him his first airplane with her teaching money. So oh. my grandma was the one that actually got it, it all going. Like she, she, my grandma is 90, like 91. She won the first ever hunter and fisherman award in all of Alaska, male or female. She, my, my grandpa died before I was born. Like um, when my mom was like a sophomore in high school. So my mom, my grandma raised 10 kids, doctors, teachers, pilots, like she's just amazing. And so um, my mom is just as incredible as my grandma and she was so strong like she carries a bullwhip 
Like she, you don't want to mess with Mama Bear. Uh, she she you, seems like yeah. quite the character, really. Like, he, I mean, if her, oh man, yeah, definitely lots He's, of personality there. So much personality, and like we, so I actually haven't even seen our show. Um, I saw maybe like part of the premiere, and then I was like, "That's how I sound." That's how I walk. <laughs> and then our producer was like, here, let's go sit at the bar. You're not allowed to watch yourself anymore. And so after that, I was just like, yeah, never watching myself again. Because you've become too critical of the way you are. And I'm like, I like who I am. I don't need to watch it and try to fix myself. And so so I don't watch it. But back to my mom, I think she would have gotten on the show a lot more. But they had to edit out everything because the whole show would have been like, beep. <laughs> so so I'm just like mom you can't talk like that around like strangers and so she's just she's so great but I I think I said it earlier the most supportive people I when I first started like I wanted to be the first girl in the NBA and my mom and dad were like yeah you're going to be like tell us your goals and we're going to help you get there and my mom is just like if I if me and my sisters tell her it's like Hey, I want to like make it to the moon one day. She's like, okay, what do we got to do? We're, you're going to the moon one day and mm-hmm. just so, so great. And so I'm so, so lucky to have parents like them, but um, yeah, my Those mom are- and my grandma, just amazing role models. And especially, you know, from the, the female aspect of it, the, the women's side of your family, that's amazing about your grandmother. I had no idea about that type of stuff. And then your mom as well. And so comment from, yeah. Yeah. She says, I actually started flying because of Air Alaska show. Before that, I didn't even know being a pilot was accessible. So Ariel, you have already inspired, I mean, I'm sure you've inspired lots of young people, young girls. Um, But yeah, somebody in the chat room has been inspired by you directly. So carrying carrying on that tradition, you know, that that just directly flows in uh, forward from there, from what your grandmother did to you or to your mom, to you, and then on to, you know, people you don't even know personally. So that's, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot that people are inspired. And that's just, I mean, that's my goal. I feel like and my like purpose is to get people inspired to follow their passions and to follow their dreams. And so um, it was, a, Izzy, thank you for, um, for watching and for being inspired and keep it up, keep it up. Well, speaking of inspirational female pilots, Jody Ruger, I am tasked with getting to know you. And I am told that you were back here on episode 348 back in December. Do you remember this? This wasn't that long ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. You guys are very memorable. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, not us, because the guys, you know, yeah, yeah. The the usual (laughs) suspects. But we we are also very memorable. Um, So what have you been up to since then? Uh, Well, since then, I have uh, still not been able to work for the airlines again. So to keep myself busy, I've been learning aircraft maintenance. And I feel like that is one of the next best things that I can do to help myself become a better pilot and have a really thorough understanding of my systems, especially because I fly so many experimental planes that don't have a pilot operating handbook. You just have to know, you know, are you running a continental engine or a light combing? Is it fuel injected? Is it carbureted? And how is that going to react under different circumstances? So you can actually diagnose a lot of issues and prevent yourself from getting stranded on the road. Um, And that's one of the things that I was inspired to do when I lost my mentor earlier this summer. He was such a huge part of my life and he did a lot of the maintenance installing my smoke system. And, and I learned a ton from him and I realized, you know, when, when people like this go away, we need to be able to pass on those skills 
you know, not just to ourselves, but the next generation as well. So I found a shop uh, here with the Thunder Mustang. And that's how I sort of got into the position of being the airshow pilot for the Thunder Mustang is I expressed a really big interest in learning the maintenance at this shop. And they took me under their wing and started giving me some experience towards my AMP. I thought that I was just going to come in for a, a quick annual. And as I learned more about the planes and how to do everything correctly, I have been just absolutely ripping my parts, <laughs> as you may see. So we've actually removed the um, smoke tank because I'm going, or the fuel tank rather, I'm going to be making a custom smoke tank to try and get like a world record on the most smoke oil you can get in a pits because it's not much and I would like to have a really awesome air show in it so we're like relocating the brake reservoir to go the other side of the firewall we've just started to rip this thing apart head to tail and uh, I'm hoping to just have a really awesome air show season if things start to calm down and the world opens up and be able to make some really exciting media content and pursue some sponsors until the airline industry picks back up that looks and sounds terrifying, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you've got it handled. That's really, that's, but like the fact that you lost your mentor and so now you have to kind of get to know all of these things is probably incredibly beneficial. I know for myself, like a lot of the fear comes from not knowing how systems work. Um, and so yeah, and it makes sense like that that would make you a better pilot, right? Yeah. And it, it was really important to me to take that experience and turn it into something positive. And um, I just never encountered somebody who was just so generous and talented and, and skilled. And I figure if I haven't encountered anybody like that in the industry, it's sort of my job to carry on that legacy and learn those skills and be that person to somebody, be that role model or that inspiration or that mentor and guide and help people get to where everybody helped me get to. You know, I was, you know, I, I had to learn a lot of this on my own in the last year. And it's just uh, something that's so meaningful for me to be able to to take this on. So I thought that was really cool. And it's, it's keeping me definitely busy. Yeah. Because, uh, so this is like a, a TikTok thing, right? Where you're kind yeah. of providing these educational videos on social media. Yeah, that was part of how it started. I started creating educational videos because I did a barrel roll water pour. So I was pouring the water while doing Yes, that is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a lot of people calling me out saying, oh, that's fake. You're in a simulator. And I was like, well, no, it it really isn't. Actually, I tried really hard to learn how to do that. So I'm offended that you think (laughs) Science people. Yeah. So instead (laughs) of getting offended, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to just treat them like, okay, they just don't know how to do this. So I broke it down. I I started creating these videos where I drilled a hole in a plastic cup and tied it to a rope and swung it around full of water to show them, like, even if you're a five-year-old, this is an experiment you can do at home. This is how positive G-forces work and coordinating the aircraft. And you can really do this. And I started just breaking things down in a really simple way. And then the TikTok Educators Fund for the Creative Learning actually approached me and asked if I could do this. So I'm really lucky that my sponsor has been very flexible. He's allowed me to make a lot of videos of what I'm doing here. If I'm cleaning and gapping spark plugs or doing a composite repair, just showing the brake lines on my pits and how that all works. So I've been breaking down some systems and trying to really condense it into 15 second to one minute segments on something that day, a a different system of the aircraft as I go. 
That's really cool. So um, you have a lot of experience as an air show performer. Um, and I have been to a couple of air shows and I am just always, <laughs> again, terrified. That's like my experience with aviation is, is I'm terrified. These things scare the crap out of me. Um, so how, how did you get into air show performing? Uh, when I was first starting out in college, my dad was dropping me off. I was moving all my stuff there. I was like 18 and we were sitting at this pub getting lunch and I watched the Red Bull air races on TV and I thought that is so cool. And I want to do that when I grow up. I, I still don't think I've grown up. <laughs> but I, uh, and I always thought that pulling G's was fun. Like ever since I was a kid, if we had these two hills close to our house. And we, when we got close to it, tell our dad to speed up so we would lose our stomachs. You know, yes. you get like slightly yep. less <laughs> going over the crest of the hill. And I could just never stop smiling when I was pulling G's. And it was always a thing for me. So I, I decided really got to pursue this and find a way to to keep aerobatics in my life and I didn't know if I had the stomach for it I just started looking into buying a plane because there was nothing available to me so I started researching how to start my own aerobatics school and I just never had the the funding available to me when I was first starting out so the eighth time (laughs) that I uh had third-party funding fall through on me, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to join the airlines, get a more lucrative career, and buy my own plane. And so the first year that I flew the Q400, I bought a half share in the Pitts S1 that you see behind me, which is about the most bang for your buck you can possibly get when it comes to aerobatic planes. Um, Then from there, you know, I, I started doing competitive aerobatics before that, as soon as I had moved to BC. And my plane, the short version of the story is my plane got stolen from the flight oh, wow. school by another instructor who just went rogue oh my god <laughs> yeah pretty wild and I had had the plane booked out for like six months it was my very first aerobatic contest I was so excited I've been training so hard and like spending every penny I could save working my second job to to do this so the last minute, the whole aerobatic community came together and they, they lent me a super decathlon, but it was U.S. registered. So I had to have a safety pilot and my safety pilot ended up being an airshow pilot. And he saw how oh, interested lucky. I was in all of this. And in the Red Bull Air Race, you had to be top 50% in the world in competitive aerobatics and have a surface level airshow waiver was the criteria at the time. So he said, hey, would you like to crew for me? I love what you've been doing with the aerobatic club. I won the the contest even with him in the back <laughs> when I went to my first contest. So he was impressed with my flying. He was trying to train me to become his ferry pilot. And I got to crew at all these different air shows and sit in on the briefings and just learn the ropes and how to build safety margins into everything and, and get the experience and exposure to the industry that I really needed to get started. And uh, that was really valuable to me. That's amazing. I think we actually have a, a video clip. Is that right? Of uh, aerobatics where, um, is this the one where you've got a little girl doing some aerobatics? Yeah. So that little girl, I, I don't think there I've we go. met a oh. kid in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that is she, so cool. She instantly just fell in love with me and uh, she found out that I flew and she's like, will you take me flying? And my mentor is her grandpa. So she saw me at the airport one day and she ran up and she's like, Jody, and she gave me this big hug and she asked if she could come flying with me. So I was like, well, of course, let's just call your dad and 
he gave us the go ahead and I just thought it would be a cute video to make and this thing went viral like beyond anything that I expected and she was just so gung-ho she's really really having fun when we're pulling g's but anytime we stop you can see her just like concentrating really hard on what I'm doing she was following the controls she actually tried to rotate the plane (laughs) <laughs> wow teaching her because I figured out pretty quick she was gonna try and learn how to do what I was doing oh that's amazing yeah I don't think really, I've ever seen so much joy on a child's well, face in my life <laughs> I'm pretty sure she is like one of my favorite human beings she's just <laughs> a gem and she's so excited like her headset falls off and she even knows how to like put it back on the next yeah. time I took her flying, she ran up in a tutu and asked if we could bring her candy. So I taught her how to float the candy and try and catch it in the air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so cool. I love it. That is such an awesome experience. I know my daughter is six and when we took her flying um, and she had the control, she was just kind of, uh, I think she was a little tentative at first, but then she kind of like jerked it really far. And then like we have a video of her face when that happened and she was just like, <gasps> It was just pure shock and then (laughs) excitement right after that. And I think maybe we've introduced her to flying now and she's going to, Oh, you've created the the bug. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So how would you, because we're talking about kids and um, you've obviously had some really joyous moments with kids and aviation. How would you mentor young women getting into aviation? What would you, uh, how would you give them advice? What advice would you give them? I guess. Um, I guess for me, it it took me a really long time to understand that when people were making jokes about me, it wasn't us just like razzing each other and I had to be witty back and give them a joke back when they're like, oh, you're going to be my flight attendant. I was like, you know, I would just make a a wittier joke back than them. It took me, I realized after 11 years that some of it wasn't a joke. Mm. (laughs) And so I actually just always treated it exactly the same you know if anybody told me I couldn't do it I just didn't believe them or I thought that they were joking like I I had no reason to believe I should have taken it seriously so it's the same sort of advice that I would give everybody else except you know once you realize that that's not a joke you might want a different support structure in place and and my best friend is the the girl who got her private pilot license with me so if you're starting young, um, I put a lot of research into scholarships. And, and when I was looking through that, like it was just everywhere. There's there's tons of scholarships out there. And that's how I got my start. Um, or just start showing up at an airfield and you will be surprised how inviting and amazing yes. the culture and experience in aviation is. And if you show up, there'll be people who are so happy to take you under your wing because aviation is full of such passionate people. So just start checking out the airport and ask people about their planes. I I haven't met a pilot that doesn't want to talk about their airplane yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good point. And I have that same experience being um, somebody who's not familiar to the aviation world, um, just kind of walking up into local airfields with Armando. Um, Everybody is super welcoming. It's like a second home now, like no matter where we go, if we've never been there before, everybody is just like, like mi casa, su casa. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I love it. Lions and everything. I mean, there's so much fun stuff to do. So next, we're going to get to know one of our lovely ladies today, Steph Plummer. So, Steph, we're getting to know you a little bit as we go, but we're going to dig deeper here. So you're That's managing good. your career as a doctor while also finding the time to fly regularly. How do you do that? 
Uh, so I like to tell people that I've managed to, my days have 36 hours. Um, I've expanded it from the usual 24. So that way I can cram more things all into a single day. Um, no, I, I don't. Sometimes it feels that way. You know, I think all of us have kind of had that experience, um, you know, being successful in our, our careers and everything else where you have a lot on your plate all at one time. And I kind of thrive on being busy in general. If I'm, if I'm not doing something, I feel like there's something I should be doing. So, um, that's just, that's just me. That's how I've always been. I think some of that has, um, part of the way we were talking about some of our backgrounds and growing up before, um, I was always involved heavily with athletics and swimming and doing a lot with school and different projects. So even from an early age, you know, I was at the pool at five o'clock in the morning, had to do that before school and after school, cram in a whole day of classes. And then I would work as a lifeguard afterwards and try to do my homework while I was lifeguarding. And then you go to bed, you know, you leave the pool at 10 PM and you're back at five o'clock in the morning. So, um, yeah, I've always just been kind of go, 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 go. So, um, that's transitioned really well into my current life. Um, but yes, I do I know people who follow me on social media and, oh, that other, uh, podcast, uh, <laughs> pilot guy, um, sometimes, uh, wonder how I cram that all in, or if I actually even have a day job, but I assure you that I do work full-time. Um, I'm a physician. I do non-surgical, uh, spine care. So, um, if you ever have a cortisone injection for back pain or sciatica, I'm the person that you come to, to, to get those types of things. So, and yes, somehow so I still managed sure to, that, what's that? You sure so you kept busy. Do you sure that you also sleep though? <laughs> yeah, yes. Sleep is also, uh, that's like my, the most prized time of those 36, no, just 24 hours. Um, yeah. If I, if I didn't sleep, I wouldn't function. And that's really, um, a big part of the balance, you know, it's, it's eating well, it's sleeping well, it's staying hydrated. It's making time for friends and the things that are fun and interesting in life. Cause otherwise it would just be a grind. Uh, <laughs> so in between doing all this stuff, how did you get into aviation? Like what point in your life, what brought you to this and why? So very different on my aspect or on my side of things in terms of how I got into aviation. Um, I was always very interested in science in general. So my degree is in biology. Um, actually, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be an on-camera meteorologist. Like I loved watching the Weather Channel. I am <laughs> super nerdy and I'm not afraid to admit that. <laughs> but um, I got into um, applying for majors in college and realized how much math went into that. So in the STEM side of things, math is not my favorite. Um, in fact, I really don't love it. And I was that the amount of math that was required to get a degree in meteorology was going to kill my love of just knowing things about the weather. So I was like, you know, I like the biology side of things. I like, I like people, I like um, medicine. So I kind of started going down that road and discovered that that was going to be the right path for me. So I did that. Um, and it really wasn't until I was in residency. Um, so I was um, through medical school and I was in my second year of residency and um, one of my coworkers, her husband was a flight, uh, a flight instructor. So you're to stay on there. Uh, <laughs> time out. And um, I was doing some babysitting for them. I'll get back to that in a second. And, you know, because we were, we were helping each other out. So we were working long hours as residents. And um, like on the weekends, if, if my coworker was working and he had to be at the FBO, either flight instructing or just working the front desk there, I'd end up watching their kid. And then, sorry for the noise my computer is making in the background. He um, at one point was like, instead of us just, you know, paying you what we've been paying you to babysit for a few hours, if you want to come take an intro flight, that would be really amazing. 
And I said, well, yeah, that sounds like fun. And I had never even considered, I, I mean, I've always liked going places and travel and doing things, no stranger to flying on aircraft, but I'd never actually considered it as something I would do personally up until that point. And then we went on that first intro flight and I was like, oh, well, uh, this is, I'm in trouble now because I have to learn how to do this. So it's dangerous. It'll get you hooked. Oh, completely, completely. <laughs> Sorry. We, uh, we found out that you are also a very inspirational woman in the chat. We have a few people grabbing IPAs now. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I will turn people on to uh, my favorite style of beer. All right. I see that you've also landed an opportunity to fly skydivers. What was that like? So very interesting flying. Um, so I've been involved in skydiving and jumping for um, since about, I'm trying to think now, 2014 or so. Um, I don't do a ton of jumping, but probably 20, 25 jumps or so a year um, on my free weekends, um, just enough to stay in it and stay current most of the time. Um, but just hanging around the skydiving center and the, the drop zone on a regular basis on the weekends. You, again, you just start to meet people, you form connections. They all knew that I was flying a lot. And that was really kind of my passion and my, my, in, how I was involved more in aviation. It was more about the flying than the, the jumping side of things. Uh, right. Yeah, let's keep moving on. So we've got, um, we're going to get yeah. to know our hosts a little bit more here. And I think this time we've got Ariel uh, interviewing Megan. Yay! I'm really excited about this. I'm so, I, first of all, I just like looking at your face. You're, I'm just like, oh, I keep <laughs> Oh, like, that's very sweet. So, Thank you. <laughs> of course, though, you're so gorgeous and you have such a good spirit around you. And so just like, oh, I can't wait to, until we get to meet in person, which yes. will, I bet, happen hopefully soon at like Oshkosh or Reno. But yes. um, so first, tell, so I know your background isn't in, in aviation. Can you tell me and the listeners, what is your background? Um, just, just, <laughs> just what, yeah, just tell me a little bit about you. Well, um, yeah, my background has absolutely nothing to do with aviation. Um, it was only when I met my lovely husband that I was introduced to aviation. Um, my dad was in the military, but he was in the Navy. He had nothing to do with aviation. Um, Armando was in the military when I met him, actually, and um, we traveled kind of all over the country on these uh, distant dates when we were starting to get to know each other, which was very cool. Um, and actually, when I met him, he had a very cool little airplane, which um, was actually my first time flying a non-commercial flight. Uh, he had this, well, it's here somewhere. I don't know where it is now. Uh, he's got a model of it back here. Um, he had a Lancer uh, 360. And if you don't know what that looks like, he called it a sucrete box with wings. Um, so basically like, a, a just the tiniest thing. And so that was my first introduction into, um, flying, not on a commercial flight and it was terrifying and wonderful. And like I said, I trust my husband implicitly. He's just a really smart guy. Um, he is totally capable and super safe. Um, and so my, my background has nothing to do with aviation, but my introduction to aviation has been amazing. Um, and so because he knows so much about aviation and his experience is so kind of well-rounded, um, it's given me an opportunity to see a lot of things that I, I just wouldn't have had any clue about. So, um, I'm, I'm getting interested. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. I wonder if his, his plan, to take you flying and all that was intentional. He's like, I'm sure so she's yeah. scared. Those endorphins are going way up. 
and she's definitely <laughs> going to want to squeeze me. So <laughs> there are yeah, ulterior yeah. motives. <laughs> yeah, your your husband is a smart man, and it worked. Yeah, and I it, got it, a it worked. Kiddo out of it. So For sure. <laughs> what about um? What about Oshkosh? What's your experience there with diversity and? Amanda, I believe it's Amanda Simpson interview. I love Amanda what? Simpson. Yes. Um, so we actually got to go um, to Oshkosh two years ago now. And um, Armando was there kind of doing some interviews for PTUK. Um, and we were able to meet some really incredible women. Um, Amanda Simpson, I think was, I don't know if this is correct. I think she's the first out transgender executive at an airline company. Um, and she was just incredibly inspiring and uh, very intimidating. We walked in to interview her and she had a um, kind of like a security person with her to make sure that we were asking the questions that were appropriate. And I was just awestruck. I was awestruck about um, her just composure and her abilities to um, just kind of cut through the noise and get the job done. And um, she was super inspiring. And then I saw uh, some other women. Um, there's like the whole women venture is part of uh, Oshkosh. And so that was really cool to have like a separate dedicated focus on women in aviation. And it, it really, really inspired me and, and kind of um, challenged me to, uh, I don't know, get a little more exposure to get a little bit more uh, I don't know, ballsy, I guess. Is that the right thing to say when we're talking about women in aviation? Probably not. Sure. Yeah. I think you could say it. Yeah. 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 It is a little nerve wracking when you're interviewing people though, because you want to show them that amount of respect, but you never know if you're going to offend someone or how, like what's the verbiage or the jargon. And so um, I want to watch that interview. She's is there so good. To- yeah, um, I don't know. I'm sure we could probably figure out which episode she was on, um, but uh, she's definitely been here uh, at least two years ago, I think. Um, we'll let you know. If we can't get it live, we'll, we'll let you know uh, in the YouTube notes there. So On the YouTubes, perfect. <laughs> on so the YouTubes. What, on the YouTubes. Well, your little daughter, what, um, what has that experience been like with her um, flying? You mentioned earlier that you guys took her out for the first time Are you, um, and that you trust your husband with your life. And now I, I guess you trust him with hers. Um, so how, what's your dream for her? Do you want her to get into aviation? Are you afraid for her? Um, maybe she'll inspire you. Like what's oh, your yeah. dream for your daughter? Oh, I like that. Maybe she'll inspire me. I, she already, geez, she inspires me every day. She's amazing. She's an amazing, tiny little human um, going on like an 80 year old woman. She's like, she amazes me constantly. Um, honestly, I would love to be like, yes, I want her to be a female aviator, but honestly, I want her to do whatever makes her happy and whatever she's passionate about. Um, and Armando and I will absolutely support her in whatever endeavor that ends up being. Um, she is an incredibly smart girl and picks up everything like instantly. And so, uh, I know her curiosity is endless. Um, and I know Armando takes advantage of that by teaching her things about aviation (laughs) and kind of planting those seeds. And I'm totally fine with that. Well, I, I, I'm so horrible at things because I never usually stick to the script. And I was like, That's I right. want to talk about your love life and um, <laughs> like all this stuff. But then there's one last question that they wanted me to ask. And so what are the challenges of being a military slash airline partner? Let's get, let's talk about that. Well, that encompasses the love life, right? 
Um, so I guess <laughs> some of the challenges are just um, the the schedules and and the kind of unexpected changes to uh, to the schedule because I, as a mother, schedule is so important, um, routine is so important. And if, if I am, you know, expecting that I'm going to have help on a certain day um, and then I don't have it, you know, that kind of throws things off and we need to readjust. And so that's probably the hardest part um, of, of being a partner of someone who is constantly kind of at the whim of someone else. Um, but thankfully, um, that's kind of less and less of our life lately. Um, his schedule has become a little bit more flexible. And so we get a lot of family time, which is really wonderful. And so then we get to experience flying together. And um, honestly, the thing that we do when we're all together and we have nothing to do, which is rare, um, but when we do get a chance to just hang out, we'll go to uh, the drop zone, which is yes. the little <laughs> grass strip that Steph was mentioning, um, where he is a skydive pilot occasionally on the weekends. Um, so we'll just go and hang out and watch airplanes fly and watch people fall out of the sky. <laughs> That's um, awesome. This has been wonderful. Such a good show. I'm so excited that this all came together and we were able to um, highlight so many different women in aviation, different aspects of aviation. Um, it's, it's a big world out there. So I love the diversity that we yeah. have brought to this show this week. It is yeah. incredibly exciting. And um, I am I am really excited that we've given some more kind of opportunity for young people to see what the opportunities could be. And also for young people in their forties ish. Yes. <laughs> we'll find you that Providing flight those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Find you that Thank flight you. instructor. <laughs> um, I know really we need quick, to wrap it up here, um, but any, yeah. oh, oh, go ahead. Thank any you. Last words? Um, thank you to the guys too, for letting us take over their platform. That says a lot about your character and how kind you guys are to let us girls shine for a bit. So thank you very much for letting us take the um, lead in this. It was really nice. Mm, here, here. So I think with that, we will go ahead and wrap up the official live broadcast here. So that was episode no number, just women in aviation <laughs> special. Very exciting stuff. Until next week, um, this has been Dr. Steph, Megan Carrion, Ariel Tweedo, and Jody Ruger for the Plane Talking UK. Bye. 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 That's been a very large part of the show, actually, mm. isn't it? All the, the year, in fact. Um, you know, talking to so many people. And obviously, we couldn't put all of our favourites in. Otherwise, it will be a, an extremely yes. long show. Um, but I'd just like to thank everybody that's contributed mm. uh, in 2021. All the people we've interviewed, uh, all the people that have been involved with the show. But most importantly, the viewers and listeners, because you are the folks that really make it. Yeah. And we are really grateful for your contributions, uh, both monetary in some cases, but more importantly, when you're in the chat room and when you send us uh, audio feedback and oh, yeah. emails as well. I, I mean, honestly, the, uh, the, the the questions in the chat room are what really make it for me because they have far better questions than you and I could ever possibly dream up of. Uh, it's, it's been so much fun. It really has. As I say, we, we cannot thank you enough for uh, for your support and involvement over the last, uh, you know, the, the last 12 months because it's, it's been a funny old year for all of us, I think, isn't it, Never. I think, oh. I think that's safe to say. 
say. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And to yeah. still be going from strength to strength. I mean, my worry, Nev, is that, you know, we've set the bar very high now for 2022 because we've got to somehow uh, do bigger and better things. But I'm sure we'll all rise to the challenge. And, of course, we have got our big 400th, which we're hoping will still go ahead, restrictions permitting at the end of February. So very excited about that. And if you haven't been in touch to register your interest, you can do that by emailing podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, you could also send us a WhatsApp as well, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. If you want to follow us on social media, all you have to do is search Facebook for Park No. That's the wrong... <laughs> Hey, <laughs> nearly, did that, nearly did that wrong. Where should they be looking, Nev? I'm clearly going to get that wrong. <laughs> I, I, I would look for plain talking. That's it. UK. I knew it started with a P. <laughs> hey, plain talking UK, uh, and of course, as I say, search all your social media for that as well. Uh, so we're going to wrap up, Nev, and I just wanted to say a personal thank you to you, sir. It's been a really, really fun twelve months, really, and it wouldn't have been the same without you sat there in your wonderful office, uh, joining us as for you've had a busy year actually so that you haven't been able to make as many as you would normally because you managed to go sort of more or less straight back to work i don't know how you managed that one <laughs> yes there, there was there was quite a bit of work going on this yeah. year which did mean that i was away for some of the uh, friday shows yeah. uh, unfortunately but um uh, no i'm hoping that things although with the covid business you never yeah. quite know what direction it's going to go in no. but uh, although things are looking a bit difficult at the moment I, it, it does look like as though certain things are going to yeah. be better uh, in 2020 so, Absolutely, uh, yes. Keep our fingers crossed for all of that. Indeed, and fingers crossed for twenty for the uh, the big meetup, the four hundred show going ahead as planned. Alfie didn't want to feel left out. Obviously, that's why he's uh... no. <laughs> and actually, just uh, just today, I've been organising uh, the food. Uh, oh, have you? It. As Ooh, well, how exciting! Um, so I've been talking with the hotel about that. So um, yes, um, when we send you a confirmation yeah. of your attendance. Uh, we'll be asking you for a small f- food contribution ah. as well. Uh, I don't Very mean good. send us a sausage roll. No, no, I mean, <laughs> not in the post, anyway. <laughs> a, a small amount of money to, Quite. Uh, Absolutely. to assist with those costs. Going to be a lot of fun. Here is to an amazing 2022. Uh, my personal thanks to Carlos, obviously, who created the madness that you and I are involved in every single week. Uh, so my thanks to you, Nev, for all your support over this last 12 months. A big, big thanks to our producer, John, uh, who I know you guys don't get to see and you'd be genuinely you'd be terrified the amount of work that has to actually go on behind the scenes to get this on the air every single Friday evening it is beyond mind-blowing and John does that with a big smile and does all the research and stuff and it really you know his contribution cannot be undersold I don't think and of course my other big personal thanks has to go to Armando he is genuinely I think the coolest human being that has ever existed on planet earth and he literally has no clue uh, which is just so exhausting because he's just like the coolest guy in the world we are very lucky to have him as part of our team and uh, he is able to do something which i didn't think was possible nev i'll be honest and that is make military actually interesting <laughs> yes I, I can't complain <laughs> no. and i've i've learned a lot from him yeah absolutely uh, this year definitely so um but he, he manages to squeeze it all in in, in between the flying that he I does know. Uh, which sometimes I know is very challenging for him, but yeah. he's always sending segments in every yeah. week, uh, re- regardless of how busy he is. He is. So uh, thank you, Armando, and thank you, uh, Matt, as well, for uh, piecing it all together when it, <laughs> when it comes in 
sometimes a little bit later than we would normally like. But, you know, <laughs> there is, it's I all, can't really complain. I, I, see, I see it as just a challenge, you know. It's one of those, yeah. isn't it? We just throw it all together. But it, it has been, uh, it's so much fun. I just sit here and press buttons. I've got the easy job, I really have. And then ask mm. questions that, to me, sound quite stupid. But then uh, there, there we go. I suppose that's my role in all this, isn't it? Asking the questions. Uh, it's been so much fun. Uh, Nev, thank you for keeping me company today. That is it. That is pretty much it for uh, for this show. It is. And we'll be back as normal uh, every Friday evening at seven o'clock uh, UK time. Thoroughly looking forward to your company in 2022. And I think we're going to have a lot going on with yeah. uh, more interviews, hopefully some more air shows. Ooh, as fingers well. crossed. <laughs> All those nice things. We can get outside when yeah. the weather's better and of course now the weather is still a bit ropey but at least it's yeah. getting a little bit lighter isn't it so absolutely uh, at least that'll be something but uh, anyway from matt and myself thank you very much indeed for joining us see you next time take care everyone bye-bye <laughs>